Welcome to the Great Bays Tennis Podcast. I'm Steve Smith, coming to you from Wintergreen, Virginia, Wintergreen Resort. There's snow on the mountain. That's why I'm wearing my winter hat. Great uh, podcast coming up. Sujay Lama, episode 173. Um, Great Bays Tennis. We give out a lot of free educational tennis content. If you could donate, just go to our website, greatbasetennis.com, and push donate. We're asking people to consider giving $10 a month. And from there, we'll go forward. Sujay is from Nepal. How often does someone get to speak to someone from Nepal? Mount Everest. So many things with uh, Sujay's background. The pillars of the Great Base, I have in my notes here, his brother, Raj, worked for Welby Van Horn. Sujay worked for Dennis Vandermeer. And while he was with Dennis Vandermeer, he certainly was with Jim Verdick and Jim Lair. Um, also part of my coaching tree, I was fortunate enough uh, with Joe Brandy and Andy Brandy, Joe Brandy one summer, Andy Brandy for two summers with All American Sports. Actually, that's how I got the opportunity to work for Welby Van Horn. So um, many people that are part of my coaching tree are part of Sujay's coaching tree. Amazing uh, history in the game. So player, parent, coach, let me call him up and we'll get started. There we go. Sujay, ring number one. Good evening, Steve. Sujay Lama, thank you for being a guest on the Great Base Tennis Podcast. Super excited. Super excited. Looking saying, forward to it. Yeah, this is great. I was just telling, uh, as an intro, uh, so many of the, you have amazing history in tennis. We'll get going with that. But tell us about, and again, it's not too often you talk to someone from Nepal. Let's go right, get it going here, because a uh, lot to cover. Tell us about growing up and where your passion for tennis began. Yeah, I am. You know, it's amazing when everybody, you know, anybody meets me and they always say, what, you have tennis courts in Nepal? Because their view of Nepal is the mountains, right? And rightfully so. We have nine out of the 14 highest mountains in the world, including the highest mountain in the world. But Kathmandu is a valley. And uh, so there are tennis courts out there, but really my passion uh, for tennis, you know, was really, my dad and my family, uh, he was a pioneer of uh, tennis in Nepal. He uh, was of Nepalese origin, but was born in Myanmar, where his uh, dad fought for the Brits uh, in the World War. And so he was born there. And because the Brits were there, I mean, he was introduced to tennis. And then when uh, the socialist regime uh, came to power in Burma or uh, Myanmar, uh, you know, they became second-class citizens because they were not of, you know, Myanmar uh, origin. So dad had to uh, pack up a suitcase and take the whole family uh, back to Nepal. And, and they were pet patriotic people. And they, they said, hey, you know, let's go to our, you know, motherland. And uh, when he came back to uh, Nepal, uh, that's when he introduced tennis to Nepal. And the way he did it was basically um, he went to Calcutta. and. Uh, there was uh, Jason Ali's father, Akhtar Ali, who he became really good friends with. And I believe there was a club called Saturday Club there and a lot of clay courts. And so he was fascinated. And so he learned how to build a clay court and came back to Nepal and uh, built five uh, clay courts. And he named it the Hit Tennis Center. And his name was Hems. So it was Hems International Tennis Center. So, yeah, I mean... Uh, 
my childhood, you know, I remember just following my whole family. And it was one of those uh, places where a lot of expats and some Nepalese people would just hang out there. And especially the Saturdays were like so much fun because it was potluck lunch. And we went there at eight o'clock and, you know, went back home like around eight, eight o'clock at night. And so, yeah, that was uh, where it all started, you know, and, and dad got the whole family going and, and soon there were uh, national events and pretty much everybody in my family became a national champion. And so I was like, okay, I'm the youngest in the family, uh, three older brothers, two older brothers and one sister, and they all were good tennis players. And so I was like, okay, I, I got to be a national champion. So yeah, that's where it all began, Steve. And how many, how many children, how many siblings for you? Yeah, so I got two older brothers, uh, DJ who's still back in Nepal. Now he's a uh, pilot and a movie star there. But he was a very good tennis player too. Um, and we all trained together with Raj later on in Germany. Um, and he became a really good player. But then he had a really bad injury on his ankle in Germany in a carpet um, court. So that kind of derailed him. And Raj, my older brother, who um, who, who kind of got, got us going because he was the one that, you know, when his um, tennis kind of got better and better. He was the one that got a chance to come to the States in Connecticut, you know, worked for Waldy Van Hon and, you know, played the circuit. And then I have a older sister, Poonam, who was a good tennis player, but was a great ping pong player. And uh, she, in fact, uh, went to the World Championship, played several Asian games. She even won two rounds at the World Championships. Uh, she was number one in my country when she was 13 years old. So actually, out of all of the my sister was the most accomplished athlete because, I mean, she was a hell of a ping pong player. But at the age of 19, she had to um, quit uh, ping pong because her hand, you know, there was a nerve issue. And so once she had a, a nerve surgery surgery on the, on the hand, you know, she could not really play anymore. But yeah, so it was a very athletic family. And, and mom and dad, of course, played too and encouraged us because that was, that was the one thing that, you know, in Nepal, that is such a... So, so far behind, right? Third world country, but yet, you know, we had you know, mom and dad that were really progressive and that really encouraged um, sports and, and music and art. And so we were really blessed. With, you know, I think of people with, uh, the, with the mountains and having Mount Everest, uh, but it's a very poor country. Um, I, I think it's, I read in my notes here, it's uh, gross natural product uh, ranked 165 among countries. So very, very, yeah, very, very poor country, but in, rich in so many ways, right? And yeah. I think the richness comes from the, like the nature. I mean, so gorgeous, so beautiful. And I think, you know, anybody that has gone to Nepal, they'll talk to you about the goodness of Nepalese people. Like, I mean, these are real pure people, real good human beings. And especially if you go, you know, out of Kathmandu and you start going in the hills and you're going for your trekking. And I took my family just a few years ago. I mean, it's just amazing. People are so friendly. People are just so happy and the way they live. And um, yeah, I mean, anybody that's gone to Nepal, they'll be, they'll be like, hey, this is one of the best places I've ever visited. But you know, absolutely beautiful country. And, and it's, like a, it's like Switzerland, really, right? Except it's a poor Switzerland. With, uh, yeah, I also have down here in the notes that... Uh with airports, uh, how many of the airports are paved versus the, the runway is, is dirt. Um, but perspective, uh, there's so many mind vitamins. Um, 
sometimes the people have the least have the most. I love how you say it. it's uh, rich in so many other ways. Um, I no, want to just jump ahead with uh, one question with your dad. It was during 9-11. I think it was your dad. It might have been Raj, but I'm pretty sure it was your dad where my two boys were very young, Connor and Mikhail, and they were uh, Craig Tiley's guest at the University of Illinois. You know, I had been there for a, uh, a workshop, which I used to, at one point I was doing one a year there, and um, they stayed, um, but then 9-11 took place, so my kids were there for some time, and I, you'd have to jog your memory as well. I think your father was there, and I talked to him on the phone about teaching teaching little kids, because he spent some time with my kids when they were younger. Was that was that your father? Can you remember? Was he there during 9-11? Absolutely. Uh, that was my dad. Actually, the week before 9-11, I had taken my dad to the U.S. Open. And it's a true story. We were also doing a sightseeing tour and we were going on that uh, the bus tour. And when we stopped at uh, the uh, World Trade Center, my dad was adamant that we go up to the World Trade Center. And I had already been there several times and we were kind of running out of time. And I really wanted him to watch, uh, go and see the uh, Statue of Liberty. So I kind of convinced my dad that, you know, let's not do this. It's, you know, we've already done the Empire State Building. It's kind of the same. So he actually took a bunch of pictures. Um, I didn't know how many pictures, but he took a lot of pictures of the World Trade Center. And so anyway, a couple of days later, we get back to Champaign, Illinois, and 9-11, you know, takes place. And literally that week, I went and printed all the pictures. And he's taken about 19 pictures of the World Trade Center. So yeah, dad was, uh, dad, you know, fortunately visited, you know, the state many times. Uh, he passed just uh, two years ago at the age of 96, but uh, he was a fascinating man, very inquisitive, brilliant man, brilliant. I mean, I always said he was like 100 years ahead of Nepal. No, I remember talking to you and um, just wanted you to confirm that, because I certainly met and talked to your brother as well who loves tennis, but your dad, dad was intrigued by, um, you know, the, 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 I guess the fundamental base that my two young boys had, um, have to go back and think about how old they would have been. So that was 2001, correct? 9/11. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 That was, that was correct. Yeah, so and you know, that my formative years with dad was, I, I remember, I mean, you know, those days we didn't even have television in Nepal. And so my fond memories with dad was, you know, listening to BBC London and Voice of America and listening to all those great matches, you know, the Borg versus McEnroe and Jimmy Connors. I mean, that's, you know, I would be, I would literally go to his room and we'd be on the bed and just listening to those, you know, mess, you know, those, uh, those matches, um, with those great commentators. And, and the other thing was, you know, the tennis magazine, you would get those tennis magazines and he would be reading through all those tips from, you know, Big Braden to, uh, Dennis Vanderbeer, and I mean, every week, you know, he was always, you know, wanting us to like change this or do this or do that, and and and, uh, and he was always in that way throughout his life, and even later on, you know, when he had sold those um, those tennis courts, he still built a little little tennis court behind the house, and still had a little academy, and yeah, so he never, I mean, he until the day he passed away, I mean, he was still involved with tennis. No, it's a great story. With getting to uh, your junior career, tell us a little bit about that and, then, and just progress from juniors on to college. 
Yeah, uh, you know, I went to a boarding school in uh, India, in Darjeeling, and uh, it was a Jesuit school run by the uh, Canadian Jesuits. And so when I was uh, there, you know, we played all the sports. We did soccer, volleyball, cricket, I mean, basketball, some tennis. But tennis, I was always dominating because of my background in tennis. So third to 10th grade, I mean, kind of did everything. And my tennis really was during the winter break when we would come back home for three months and really play really you know, intense tennis. And uh, so going into my uh, ninth and 10th grade, my brother Raj had already moved to uh, Germany. And so for the winter breaks, those two months, those two years, I was able to go to Germany and train with Raj intensely. And so I got really pretty good at a fast rate. So when I um, graduated from, at that time when you, you know, graduate from 10th grade, you could actually you graduated from school out there and you know you didn't have 11th and 12th grade in India at that time so I took two years off um, between you know the 10th grade onwards for two years and that's when I went to Raj and and that's where I really really um, got my game to a higher level and uh, he pushed me hard he taught me how to suffer Um, he was a young coach so I kind of was like his guinea pig a little bit but uh, I was able to play a lot of ITF tournaments after I trained there. So I got my ranking up to top 50 in the world in juniors and got to qualify for just about every tournament, um, you know, every big junior tournament, including junior Wimbledon. And, you know, what really happened was that um, that was, I think, towards the end of my second year with him. Uh, I was in the main draw of junior Wimbledon. And literally we were training in Germany and we were about to fly to Germany. I think two days time I was going to go to Germany and I actually um, tore my meniscus. And then on top of that, there was a big fly <laughs> that bit me in that area. I think I was stretching. I had an infection. So believe it or not, I mean, I had this big swelling on my knee and I could not. <laughs> I could not play Wimbledon. I was devastated and I was out for a couple of couple of months because I had to, you know, rehab and get better. And that's when I went back to Nepal and my mentor at that time, Dr. Terry Miller, who's an American lady who worked for United Nations World Health Organization, you know, pushed me to go to a expat school for American um, kids out there in Nepal, uh, Lincoln School. And that's where I went back and then finished my 11th and 12th grade, you know, with, uh, with the goal of maybe potentially playing college tennis down the road. And so that's exactly what happened. So in a bizarre way, I mean, I think I look back at it as a, you know, blessing in disguise because had I not had that injury, maybe I would not have finished my high school and maybe I would not have had the chance to come to America and and get a college education and have this amazing, you know, journey. Um, Suji, tell us about your brother. He's 12 years older, Raj, and his connection with Welby Van Horn and, how that impacted your game? Yeah, so Raj, uh, you know, he was passionate about the game and he, you know, absolutely wanted to play tennis. And so, uh, you know, there's again, a, I believe a Peace Corps volunteer who actually was a really, really former, really good player from America that became a really good friend of Raj and somehow had connection with uh, Wolby Vanon. And so he got a chance to go and train as well as work in the summer with uh, Welby Van on it. So that's where, you know, a lot of his uh, formative, you know, coaching years were, he was the mentor. And so 
when Raj came back, um, that's what he did. You know, he, he taught us some of those principles that he learned uh, with Welby. And, and the, the one that I'll never forget, because I, I didn't have a whole lot of lessons. I mean, besides what my dad told me and, and just experiment, experiment, experimenting on my own. But I still remember the clock and, you know, finishing at 11 o'clock for your forehand and, you know, finishing with the L stick, you know, on the back and one in the back end. Um, but Raj, uh, yeah, you know, he played well. Um, uh, he, I, I believe he had a couple of ATP points. He had a ATP ranking, but um, where he actually played a lot of really great tennis was when he moved um, to Germany. And before Germany, he was in Dubai. And one of his uh, big, big uh, achievement was to win the Dubai Open when Dubai Open was not as big as it was. You know, now, I, I remember many years ago in the 80s, I think early 80s, uh, he beat a top Austrian player at the Dubai Open. Um, and uh, yeah, I think he was there for a couple of years and then went to Germany. And that's where he really started more into his coaching career and he was working with clubs. And so that opportunity to go there and, and train with him. And then I started playing a lot of club tennis in Germany. So I played club tennis for many years, even later on, when I was working for Dennis Vandermeer, when I was traveling with the the pro players and junior players, you know, in Europe, I would still go back and play um, club tennis in Germany. No, the club system in Germany, uh, Mark Hamlin was on last week and he's an American who's been in Germany now for 42 years. I think that's a, a great plus. I know perhaps uh, the professional UTR tournaments will will turn into a major positive because I think a lot of times people in the States, players who become very good, they play in college, but they don't want to pursue a pro career. There's really nothing for them. We used to have uh, under 21s with the USTA. We had over 25s. Um, but that, the club system is is great. Um, with uh, playing on the red clay. Uh, when, you yeah, thought, when, you, when, you, when your dad built the courts, it was red clay? Yeah, red clay. Yeah, so I was really a baseliner, and then of course in Germany too. You know, uh, in the summers you played on a clay court. Um, had a pretty extreme forehand grip that kind of switched as you know as I played. You know, hard courts I had to kind of switch my grip in a little bit. But no, that that experience in Germany was a lot of fun, and of course there was some money too. Um, I I literally remember. I mean, right after the match, you would get you know, money based on if you won or you lost, <laughs> you know, and, and they would just give you this cash. Um, and, uh, and you know, it was well organized because when I was traveling, I still remember one year when I was uh, on the tour traveling with uh, the women players, um, one of the clubs wanted me to come and play a match. And they actually flew me from Paris to Dusseldorf for the weekend just to play a match. And, uh, you know, and then flew right back to Paris. But uh, yeah, that was at that that time, you know, in Germany, there was a huge, huge um, tennis boom because of Becker and, and Steffi Graf. So just great memories out there. Before Becker and Graf, um, many Germans, they would just play in Germany because there wasn't that much money in pro tennis. And they had such a great lifestyle playing club tennis. Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of them could have had, I mean, pretty nice, ranking you know if they had played outside of germany but yeah you're right there was so much money at that time and raj is still coaching correct yeah raj is now still coaching uh freelancing uh he uh was in germany for about 22 years and then moved 
to uh, Florida. He worked in uh, Saddlebrook for a few years and then became a director of a country club, uh, Gainesville Country Club in, uh, in Gainesville, Florida for several years and then later on uh, made the move to Texas where I was, you know, at UNT, University of North Texas for 17 years. So he was my volunteer assistant, yet he was also able to do a lot of um, coaching. Um, just loves uh, coaching and especially the one-on-ones is great with little kids. Um, and especially also those, you know, those, those formative years where that five, six, seven year old, he's a master. Oh, that's great. Uh, with, um, college tennis, I mean, obviously you've been a coach for decades now, um, 30 plus, is that right? How many years have you been coaching college tennis? Well, this is my, yeah, 28th year, <laughs> believe it or not. It wow. does not feel like it, Steve. Um, like I told you last week, uh, it does not feel like I've done this for 28 years. I think when you're having so much fun, um, you know, time just flies. But just got really lucky. Um, met uh, the great Andy Brandy, Coach Andy Brandy, uh, at the Australian Open when I was traveling with Amanda Coaster. I was a hitting partner and a traveling coach while she was training in Vandermeers and got to meet... Uh, Andy in an elevator. I believe it was higher of the Marriott with one of the tournament hotels, and we were going up the elevator, I think, and we were going on the same floor, 24th floor, and that's when we introduced each other. And he said, Yeah, I know you. I've seen you around, Sujay. And uh, yeah, he gave me his business card, and then he said, Call me when you, you know, when you um, are interested or when you feel like you're ready to, you know, move into college coaching. And a couple, couple of years later, when uh, I felt like, Okay, I've done enough of traveling. Um, he gave me the chance, and so yeah, that that was my introduction to college coaching was being an assistant to Andy Brandy for three years, uh, where we were just incredible. It was a great opportunity. My first year, we won singles, doubles, and went undefeated uh, as a team. So that was my introduction to college tennis. But no, I've been really blessed, Steve. I mean, it's the greatest job in the world. It's one of those jobs. In Tennis that you do everything. It's so um, so diverse, and um, there's never a you know down moment really in, well, in, with college with college tennis. We we can back up and talk about your college days as a player and your days with Dennis Vandermeer. But uh, let's talk about uh, more with the University of Florida. I remember being at Notre Dame. Um, I went to watch uh, Julie Scott was a player was at Stanford that I, I trained in Tyler, Texas. So that was great player. That was part of the visit. And then also a huge page. Uh, when he was younger, everyone called him Bush. He's a Dean of uh freshman at Notre Dame. So there's, plus there was a little kid tournament for my, my children, uh, my two boys. So we made a weekend of it, but we were there when you won the tournament. Uh, I think you beat Duke in the finals. At Notre Dame, right? Yeah, that was my yeah, that was my third and final year with Andy, and yeah, we uh, my first year we were undefeated. Second year we lost in the finals to Stanford. Uh, it was an amazing match. Uh, Ann Kramer was was uh, playing number two, and Lilia Osterloh played number one, and those two became top fifty in the world. And I believe Ann Kramer was like top twenty five. So uh, they had a loaded lineup, and then yeah, we finally again you know went to uh, the third season was when we went undefeated and we won against Duke. Great match. Uh, yeah, the, the, the memory I have of that match was uh, Don Booth, one of the, uh, the best players I've ever coached in college. Um, a kid from Kansas 
real, real uh, tough, tough, gritty player. And she was cramping and she played Vanessa Webb, who yeah. actually in that, after that team event won the NCAAs and it was a crucial match that we had to win. And, and here's Don that uh, was cramping and, and somehow, you know, found a way to win that match. But no, it was, uh, was three amazing years and, and really um, I learned a lot from Andy and that whole experience was something that I'll never forget. And I still have, I mean, talk with just about all the players, uh, you know, from my Florida days. With uh, Don Booth, I remember that match. He went on and coached. One of our juniors uh, played for her when she was a college coach. Uh, Webb is, is a Canadian gal, right? Yeah, Vanessa Webb was a Canadian lefty, and she actually kind of played a little different style. She would serve and volley twice yeah. a lot. Um, and that same year, uh, we played a dual match against Duke. So it was like in February, and Don played number one that day, I remember. Um, at Duke and got in a zone and beat Vanessa Webb 6 0 6 0. Wow. I've never seen an NCAA champion lose a match 0 0, but that was, that's how tough Don was. And, and, but an incredible team player for sure. Well, the depth of the players as well. Plus, um, the trio, it was, it was you, Andy, and Joanna Russell. That was a great, form, yeah. great, yeah. formidable team. Uh, I remember my, my boys uh, get a hitting session with uh, Joanna Russell. Then she later came and she hung out at our program. She came to visit for a day. She's a Wimbledon champion. I mean, she, I think, think she's doing quite a bit with uh, pickleball now. I think my, my idea is that she's got to be hitting balls. She's just got that type of energy. Yeah, Joanna, probably the one of the nicest human beings I've ever been associated with. And uh, yeah, she was our volunteer assistant in Florida. And she just was one of those, you know, positive people, just loved the game. And, you know, and, and she had that, hey, you can do anything you want to do. Because if you look at her game, I mean, she hardly had any ground strokes, really. I mean, her forehand, she had, you know, she, it wasn't a very good forehand. I mean, she would improvise, she would slice it, she would dice it. I mean, um, and but she was aggressive. She was athletic. She came to the net a lot, and you know she won Wimbledon doubles, and she uh, got to number one in the world at one point. And in singles, she was not shabby either. She got to the quarters, I believe, of Wimbledon. She was as I think as high as I think twelve or thirteen in singles. Um, played at Trinity Trinity University in uh, Texas at that time. Yeah. They were Div One, and I believe she was part of a national championship team there. And I was so fortunate because when I got that job at Illinois, uh, I asked her and said, hey, Joanne, will you follow me? And so she came to Illinois and we had eight great, amazing years uh, together there. And, and she was you know, instrumental in helping me be a head coach for the first time. And, and uh, we still, you know, we still uh, are best of friends. And she's practically like my god godmother for my kids because when my Two kids, Priya and, and Sid, were um, born in Champaign in Chan's Hospital. She was outside the um, the hospital room <laughs> both nice. the times. And yeah, just a great human being. With uh, a gamer, she grew up playing Chris Everett. I think she's the same age as Everett. Everett would be uh, turning, I think, 69 right. in December. So she that's, uh, that's right. had a smile on her face, and she certainly lost quite a bit, but then to uh, turn around and have a, such a successful pro career. Yeah, and her best friend was uh, Mary Carilla because they both are from Naples, Florida, and they literally live right like 
in the same neighborhood and and yeah and, and of course Chris was the one that was dominating in 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 that you know so she had some great stories about sto- uh about Chrissy with uh give us a story or two about Andy Brandy uh certainly I mentioned it um bef- before we brought on the air that uh that was my connection to working with Welby Andy Brandy Joe and Andy worked for All American Sports and you know, that's where I met them. And I'd been tennis for five years and I really, I had, once I met them, I realized I, I hadn't met very, very many people that were at, at their level of coaching. Um, yeah. I think a few things that comes to mind is the intensity, uh, integrity, and uh, just a great, great human being. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I have the, the highest respect for coach Andy Brandy. I mean, he, taught me so much i mean uh and i'm so glad i you know got a chance to be under him because i mean the guy was just an amazing worker i mean he was he was at work every single day by six o'clock in the morning and he was the one that you know he just loved to be on the court and uh and you know this all these great coaches that i've been you know you know associated with is, is, is their passion for teaching is their passion and hunger for, you know, being on the court and working and feeding balls and just, you know, the repetitive, you know, nature of things. Because, you know, it's so easy to like, you know, okay, 15 minutes now I gotta do something different, right? I mean, whereas Andy, like, hey, he didn't mind doing this one thing for an entire hour. We're gonna work on forehand, inside in and inside out. Well, guess what? 60 minutes, let's go, <laughs> you know? But um, no, just uh, treated us so well, and and uh, to this day, I mean, you know, we still talk uh, once in a while. We share the same birthday, so seventeenth of August. We always uh, we have a tradition to talk to each other. But both um, Andy and his wife Nancy were just incredible people, and for me at the at that time, you know, could not have asked for a better mentor. What I say about uh, Andy Brandy is that when he was a kid, I believe he beat Jimmy Connors twice. But I always say the best match he ever won was Nancy Brandy. She is a um, great lady. <laughs> with, uh, that is but like that yourself, is but like yourself with Raj, um, Joe Brandy. Now a lot of people uh, would know that he was coaching Sampras when he won his first uh, major. He won, he won the U.S. Open at nineteen. But it's in Julie uh, Anthony's book that Charlie Passarell wanted to quit tennis. He thought Welby was being too tough. And Mrs. Passerell said, hey, if your cousin Joe can play on one leg, because he had Joe Brandy had polio as a kid, um, and said, if your, your cousin can play on one leg, you're, you're not going to quit. Um, but uh, intensity, I remember uh, Andy Jackson told me that uh, he also learned so much just by being around Andy because he was a men's coach. Um, was he there when you were there as well? No, that was, uh, I would say when Ian Dubenhag was, and after when I went to Illinois, that's when Andy Jackson, um, you know, um, came to Florida. But no, yeah, that, uh, in, a, in, in many ways, I think one of the things that really um, uh, I complimented Andy was I was able to, you know, with his intensity, I kind of kind of saw the need for me to kind of balance. So I was kind of like, like the yin and the yang, you know, and, and so... And a lot of times, I you know, these kids sometimes didn't understand that his intensity was, you know, to make them better. And so 
you know, when there were times where I felt like the kids might be breaking down because of the intensity, I was able to go out there and, and I think, you know, make them understand that, hey, look, you know, he's coming from a place where he really cares for you, you know, and this is, this is what it takes to get to the next level. And, uh, and it helped that I was, you know, on the tour, you know, before I went to Florida, because although we had one of the greatest teams ever at Florida, you know, where Jill Crave was played number one the first year I was there, when I went from like traveling with Amanda Coaster, who was top 16 in the world, I mean, when I went to Florida, I, I was like, okay, hey, we need to get our intensity here, you know? I mean, these were like best, one of the best college teams ever, and I'm like going, there's a drop off of intensity. So I think I was able to help, you know, these kids relate to what Andy was uh, wanting from them and uh, and then kind of be that, you know, kind of a good cause uh, when, you know, Andy was so demanding. But uh, no. I can, I, mean, see, I, can see where, I can see where you, your personality would be good to uh, the yin and the yang that you guys are, you bounce each other out. Uh, were you there when Lisa Raymond was there? No, Lisa had just, yeah, the year before, um, you know, I got the job, that's when Lisa turned pro. But I got to know Lisa fairly well on the pro tour. And actually, the reason I met um, Andy was, Andy was in Australia at the Australian Open with Lisa Raymond. And that's, you know, and then also he traveled to a couple of those big tournaments in the Grand Slam. So we'd actually um, several times bumped into each other. And, and of course, that, 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 that time that we were in the elevator was that time where we actually had a, you know, face to face kind of conversation. And, and yeah, the rest is history. For uh, Lisa Raymond, I mean, what a great doubles player, great singles player as well. Um, I think she, uh, I was corrected on this one time. I believe that. I was correct that she ended up 15 year end ranking singles. So she's a great player, but in the Bryan brothers, uh, one of them called her money, or I guess they both call her money. And the joke was, uh, whichever Brian brother won some mixed titles with her, uh, they used to, they used to put all their money in the same bank account. And the, <laughs> the brother who played Lisa's in, no, 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 it's not 50, 50. I remember I played with money when I played money. Yeah. I put, great. I put more money in the account. Yeah, yeah, great slice backhand, uh, amazing athlete, and of course, amazing volley. And so, yeah, she, uh, I think, became number one in the world in doubles, right? Pete? Yeah, no, and one, a lot of majors. She should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, maybe she's up for it now, I don't know. But with, uh, I'm always telling people, like, you know, if I was coaching college tennis, it's like, uh, okay, coaching doubles on the women's side or the men's side, I would say, let's watch film Elisa Raymond. Um, what do you think of the game having gone so much to one up, one back? You know, look, the best college uh, doubles team was definitely Nikos and uh, Donkos. I mean, they won two uh, championships, and then the third one, they I believe had a match point and lost. Uh, they could have won two consecutive ones, and both of them really, I mean, they came forward. Well, and, and tell and, me, uh, the, tell me the duo again. It was what players? Uh, Stephanie Nikitas. Yeah. Stephanie Nikitas and Don Booth and. Stephanie and uh, Christina Morris, who is now the current coach at USF, South Florida, um, in juniors, they were, I think, ranked as high as number one in the world in juniors. And so when Stephanie came, Stephanie was one of those stylish, you know, she kind of like, she had that flair. She played like Gabby, you know, Sabatini. And, but she had beautiful volleys, and she was not afraid to come to the net. She was a pure servant volleyer. Uh, Don was more of a counter puncher, but she also could come forward. So I always, you know, whenever I, you know, 
and coaching uh, doubles in college, I always give that, you know, example of like, look, you know, like the best doubles I ever, you know, saw in college was Stephanie and Don. And the reason was they were able to come and where they were two up and then they isolated the one up, one back. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, yeah, ground strokes, the returns are big, but at the same time, I still, you know, fundamentally believe that, you know, it's still uh, the right thing to do is to come forward, you know, and not every time maybe, but you've got to come in. And some of the biggest matches I've been involved is when, you know, we've won those big games, big points, when we, when, when I've had my players come forward and there's two people out in the net. So, um, yeah, but it's uh, definitely a little bit of a lost art because of so much emphasis on the ground and, and uh, not enough, I believe, you know, in the junior development of working on the transition game because I think they work on the volley. I've seen some great volleyers in college, um, great ground strokes, but they've not worked on the transition game. I think that's where, you know, that's where the, the, the problem arises is that they are lost in that transition area, you know? And, um, and I think, uh, you know, in, in juniors, if they do a little bit more of that, you know, the work, um, I think they could be so much more effective by the net. I'll tell you, Stephanie, the key story. I remember talking to Andy briefly and her father came and met with me and she was finishing at Florida or maybe finishing off playing some on the pro tour. But the idea was before she got into coaching at a high level, that they wanted to have her come work with me because I'm in the grassroot level working with beginners. Um, but yeah, I remember that that didn't happen. Did she play on the tour, Stephanie? You remember? You know, uh, she really did not. I think she played a little bit. Um, and I, I mean, if she, as you know, Steve, you know, to make it in the pro level, you need a different kind of a mindset, right? I mean, you can be a great player, but if you don't have that single, you know, singular mindset, like, you know, really... And then also being resilient, right? Because you're going to fail, you know, enough, especially in the initial stage. And so, um, but I, I really wish that Stephanie would have, you know, really gone hard like uh, like Jill did. Um, but she did not because she, she really could have been a great double player, even at the pro level, because that's how she was. She was an athlete, broad shoulder. She could hit a good ball from the, you know, ground stroke. I mean, but her volley was just crisp and so natural. Um, but I have a good story about Jill Fabers actually, because when she won the NCAs, um, for about a year, she was kind of lost a little bit and she was kind of playing, but not really playing. And she was distracted. She put on some weight. She was not having the success she was wanting to see in the, in the, uh, the satellite level. And so one day, uh, she comes and she said, Hey, CJ, you know, you have some time to talk to me. And so I, you know, vividly remember uh, us sitting down, you know, right next to um, the court at Florida is a law school. And so there was a bench there. And so we sat down for about an hour and, 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 and she was like, CJ, what should I do? And I said to Jill, I said, Jill, look, you've had a good career. You won an NCAA championship in singles. Uh, you know, you were a great college player. So look, you can retire. You can get married. She was dating somebody. I said, you can go to grad school. You can find a great job. But if I were you, Jill, I would commit 100%. 100%. Right now, you're just not committed. You're doing it, but your one foot is in, one foot is out. You know, look, give it all for one year. 
but have no regret, but do everything 100%. And at the least, you're going to travel the world, you're going to get to see the world, you're going to get to experience, um, you know, so many new things, and then you can always, you know, go back to doing whatever you want. But that's what I would do. And so I'm so super proud, you know, of Jill, because really, years later, right? I mean, every time I'm like watching her on TV, I mean, they were like, oh, she's one of the fittest American players and hardest working. And she's completely changed. I mean, she changed the body because of nutrition, workouts. And I mean, she was top, I believe, top 50, top 40 in the world. She even made the Olympic team. She beat Serena Williams at Wimbledon. She, you know, played, and she had a long career, too. Long career. So, you know, and, and she was not very tall. She was not the biggest hitter. Great, you know, good hands, good counter puncher. So, um, you know, so that was really, really proud moment. And, and you know, like, when I, when I think about it, like, also I traveled with Amanda Coates, and I was very fortunate. I got to do about 10 grand times with her, too. Another, like, five foot two, just persistent, resilient, um, never give up. And, I mean, wow, what a career she had. I mean, I, I was fortunate when I was traveling with her. She was top 16, but I think she got as high as, I think, five in the world. Yeah, I remember. And here's a five foot two, you know? South African player. Yeah. Yeah. With uh, going back to going back to Florida, um, I remember one year where you know ESPN coverage, Andy Brandy went to the very top of the stadium because there was he had two players in the finals. Was that Kravis as well? Or two 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 players from the same team played each other in the NCAA finals? Two Floridians. Yeah, I uh, I wasn't there at that time, but I wouldn't be surprised. There were so many great players, right? Lisa yeah. Raymond, Sean Stafford, I mean, um, Nicole Arendt. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so many great players. But, yeah, I wasn't part of that, but I wouldn't be surprised because, I mean, we literally, like, the year that, the years I was there, pretty much all eight players were in the national team for the U.S. national team. I mean, everybody was at least top 15, top 20 in the country. So yeah, we got the best of the best, really. And, and uh, I mean, just to give you an idea, like Stephanie Nikitas like, played, like Stephanie Nikitas and Tracy Green, now the Harvard coach. I mean, they battled for the number six spot. <laughs> wow. So that's how good, how, how good we were. And by the way, the year that Stanford beat us, believe it or not, Julie Scott, who you coached, who became top 100 in the world, played Stephanie Nikitas, I believe, at number six. <laughs> at number six. Well, all these so names. Then, uh, so, yeah, I had a lot to do with the Harvard tennis camp years ago and when Tracy Green came in, really quiet. But uh, yeah, I remember asking her about playing for Andy Brandy that she, you know, it was, it was pretty easy to pull some stories out of her. I mean... Um, I, I have a story on intensity, but I want to come back to the word intensity with Andy. But there's a, a funny story about the football coach. Uh, Lou Holtz was an assistant for Woody Hayes at Ohio State. And I think it was Leroy Keyes, a great defensive back. Um, and uh, Lou Holtz was telling, uh, you know, he was calling in, calling one thing from the sidelines and Woody Hayes disagreed with them. And, you know, Woody Hayes was right on the sidelines. If you say that one more time, you're going to be fired. So I'll tell you a tense story of intensity with Andy Brandy. So we all American sports. We went to the Hamptons, West Hampton, where went came up from Boca West, and it was cold and windy. And our job was to put up windscreens. We had to set up this facility, beautiful place on the beach. 
So this guy comes by, he's got the fancy sports car, 450 SL. And he comes out and he's, you know, he's got the gold chain, more than more, more one on his, the Italian warm-ups. And, and uh, just, I just remember jewelry and Italian warm-ups and sunglasses. And, and he said to Andy, he goes, uh, I want a lesson. And Andy says, we're not going to be open until uh, the, till Monday. This is like a Thursday or something. And then he started arguing with Andy. And next thing you know, he goes, he said to Andy, he goes, well, I'll give you a lesson. And now then they start arguing back and forth. And I mean, my hands were just frozen. And he wasn't a very good player. But so I, Andy just goes, Smith, you're going to play this man a match right now. And he did. It was he was. I told some Florida players this. So he's just pacing up and back, up and back. And he says, "Smith, if you lose one game, you lose one game, you're fired." And uh, <laughs> so this guy wasn't very good. I beat him love and love, but or maybe it was just one set. But the guy, I remember the guy had this flat pancake serve. He, he had no idea where it was going. The wind's blowing. I'm just frozen stiff. And uh, I I did catch up and didn't lose that game. It may go back. It's probably just one step. These guys were screaming at each other, and and uh, so you give us a story. Did you ever? Did you ever say I'm going to fire you? Oh my goodness! Yeah. Well, let me tell you. I've been playing Texas. Uh, I believe that was my first year or second year, and I think the year before Texas had beaten Florida. After Florida had taken a, I believe. Um, after singles, we were up, I believe, 4-2. And those days, the doubles comes as one point. And so Texas had come back and won three straight doubles to beat Andy the year before I had been there. So when we played Texas at home, there was about 1,000 people on the stand. And so in the middle of the match, you know, we had a little bit of a, you know, argument. And, you know, Andy called me behind the fence. And so I'm walking behind thinking that's where he's going to tell me something. So he keeps walking in the, to his office and I'm like, okay, I got to follow. He opens the door. We go inside and we are both screaming and yelling at each other. And five minutes later, we open the door, we come back, we beat Texas. And I'm like, okay, I'm fired. So next morning I'm thinking, okay, I'm probably not going to have a job. And I sneak in like around eight o'clock. He's already been there at six o'clock. And then he, I think, the, you know, here here's me coming in from the door, and and the next thing I hear is like, "UJ, lunch is on me." <laughs> you know, that's Andy Brandy right there. Yeah. But no, uh, he was intense. But you know, he was such a fair guy, and and we had a good time. I re- uh, remember being told that um, because of Andy Brandy, the word "fat" could no no longer be used on uh, University of Florida on their campus. Um, because you know he certainly wasn't going to have any any girls. You know the, the freshman fifteen. He was going to make sure they they had half a bagel or whatever. But uh, yeah, with what years were you at Florida? Yeah, I was in Florida. I believe. Let's see. Let's go back. I think ninety five was my first year there. So I think at ninety five, ninety six, and ninety seven. That's where I was. Yep. And what do you think about you know the way? I mean, is it just got so soft and we're so politically correct? Um, you know, the way Andy with his intensity, um, I've been told that I can be intense as well. Um, do you think he, or coaches are still talking that way or is it just, just totally gone away? 
Yeah, I think, uh, look, I mean, it's changed. And, uh, you know, we've had to also evolve, right? And and so, yeah, some of those, you know, those, uh, you know, like the Andy, uh, Andy types of uh, coaching, I think, uh, you know, now it's, uh, it's, it's tough. I mean, it's, it's really tough. And, um, um, you know, and, and so much has been because, you know, I, I really believe that, um, you know, the, uh, the NCA has given, you know, empowered, you know, this student athlete so much to the point where like everything that we do, we have to really, you know, be so mindful of making sure that, you know, you're politically correct. Right. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, look, all I can tell you is that, you know, there was a reason why those kids in Florida were good. I mean, Andy got the best out of them, you know, and, and at times, yeah, I mean, it was, it was tough, but growth takes place when you get out of your comfort zone. Say that again. And, uh, so, you know, yeah. Say that again about um, comfort zone. What did you say? Um, I, I truly believe that, you know, there's growth that takes place when you get out of the comfort zone, yeah, okay. you know, and, and, and that's what coaches are meant for, right? I mean, how do we get out athletes to get out of their comfort zone? Um, because they're suffering, there's mental and physical suffering. So when you really want to be good and, and a lot of times, a lot of the times, I mean, the suffering is really the mental part really. And, um, so, you know, I have a, I have a saying that I really believe in, and I always say, you know, like to be good, you have to learn to suffer, but to be great, you have to love to suffer. And so that's what I know. I've, you know, tried to evolve as a coach with the times, but still believe in that core you know, philosophy. And so it's just like how I deliver and how I, uh, how I get the kids to understand that is different, but, uh, but definitely, I mean, you know, we have to be fairly careful uh, with, you know, how we try to bring that, you know, from, from the, uh, from the student athletes that we work with. And that, that's, that, and that's a challenge. That's with, a challenge. Uh, and that's where. I'm sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. No, and that's the challenge because, you know, you know, you have to be able to push that button that that's going to get them out of their comfort zone, right? And and whenever you're bringing somebody out of their comfort zone, um, that's not easy. And uh, yeah. but it, it's doable. It's, it's more challenging for sure. With, and in some ways, I think it's a little bit more easier to coach the, the guys, um, you know, because you can't kind of, you know, be instinctive and maybe even, you know, yell and scream a little bit. Right. Um, but as far as if you are a women's coach, you really have to, you know, you know, watch how you, you know, handle those situations when you, you are trying to bring the best out of them. I was doing some projects for the Utah tennis association and uh, Florida, I believe it was BYU and Utah, but I was at a Utah match for sure. And, uh, I, I don't know, Lisa Raymond, maybe she lost, you know, just two, three matches. She, I believe she was in school for two years, but I, um, you know, the Florida team came up, they're playing high altitude, they're playing indoors and she was a freshman, but, uh, no, it was, uh, interesting to, uh, you know, just have that experience to, you know, be with the Florida tennis team, um, with, with Andy. How about, were you there with Kathy Rinaldi or that was a different time? Was she on campus? No, uh, no, Kathy, uh, Kathy and myself, I mean, we were um, working together uh, for the summer camp, you know, and Andy, um, 
you know, uh, we had our Nike camps there. Uh, Kathy would come over and we would run the camps. And yeah, that was a, just a great time because Kathy uh, just, you know, she always had that beautiful smile and she's that positive person. So, you know, whenever I see, you know, in the last couple of years when she was at the uh, Religion King Cup and I would see her in the, uh, on the sideline, I mean, that's, that's the Kathy I knew. I mean, she always had that beautiful aura and positivity. And yeah, I was a young coach at that time and still kind of trying to establish a system for the summer camps. And um, I wish, you know, uh, you know, all the things I know now how to run camps, I, I, I had that knowledge in Florida, but but yeah, we, 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 we made do and we, I think our passion kind of, you know, got us through those camps, but uh, definitely, I mean, um, camp business is not easy and I think you only learn and get better, you know, each year. And so the last several years, I mean, the camps that I've run, I think, you know, we've had a lot more structure and, and, and a system down and, and everything, you know, runs a whole lot better. But those Florida, Florida days was like, okay trying to implement all the things but not oh, yeah. quite you know a finished product product there's so many things i talked about i love i love tennis camps i would consider myself to have been a tennis camp junkie that's really how i i learned um but kathy rinaldi for our listeners i mean top 10 player in the world and now she has a leadership position she has for many years with usta she just stepped down as the head coach of the billy jean king fed cup team but she lived on campus uh i mean she was based as a pro um, and was in Gainesville. So that certainly must have uh, helped the team uh, to have a top 10 player, even from a recruiting standpoint. Um, but I, I can remember also going to a, a, a pro tournament and uh, remember sitting with Andy and he said, hey, if you're going to sit sit here, make sure you don't touch your nose because the camera is going to be on you the whole time. But yeah, so he, <laughs> he did travel with her. So I know they've been connected together for many, many years. I can remember watching her take lessons. You know, she was um, obviously one of the better juniors in Florida and she was, was under, she was under 12. And uh, I remember watching her take lessons and uh, uh, you know, I was a neophyte, got into the game so late coming, crossing over from ice hockey. And, and it was a thing with the racket on edge. And um, it was Frank Froling, great guy. And I got to know him later he was in the resurfacing business, but he was a top American. And both Frank and Kathy, you know, Frank was coaching her and he was telling her to get the racket on edge in the backswing. And then when he would hit, he'd have the racket face closed and she would hit, they would have the racket face closed. Um, but, you know, I was just uh, reading and observing and listening, but uh, that certainly must have helped. Uh, I don't know how many years that, um, that Andy was there or how many years Kathy was there, but that must have been a special for those players to have a top 10 player on campus. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And really, I mean, going back to the camp situation, I mean, a lot of like what I learned over the years to really run an efficient camp was what you had kind of given to Craig, Craig, um, Craig Tiley, you know, at Illinois. And I think, you know, I had all these different, you know, knowledge, you know, from my days at Vandermeer and, you know, having done camps and Street Briar and, and of course, uh, trying to do those camps, run the camps, because really, you know, Andy let us run the camps. And then when I came to Illinois, I think when I saw Craig run the way he ran his camps there, and we worked together and did those Nike camps there, and, and a lot of what Craig had, you know, uh, learned was from you, you know, from your, from his time with you at, at Tyler Junior College. And so 
I really, I mean, I think I started putting what I knew with what I saw with Craig and I learned that. And I think really when I went to uh, University of North Texas the last 17 years, that's where I really, I felt like I really had really special camps. I mean, we sold out our camps and we had four weeks of junior camps and one week of adult camps. And we literally, I mean, we had 75 to 85 kids per week and we had 50 adults coming just about every summer. And I think we were one of the, like, like the highest rated camps, you know, Nike camps in America. And, and really, uh, thanks to you and thanks to Craig, thanks to, you know, Dennis and, and, and Andy and all of you. I think, yeah, it's, uh, it's one of my passions. And, and a lot of college girls don't want to do camps because they think it's, oh my goodness, it's a lot of work. And, and that's how it felt at Florida because when you are not as, you know, organized and you don't have that quite the system down of how you want to do the technical element, how you want to do the, the, the you know, the, the match play and how you want to do the team building and all that. It can be chaotic, but once you get a good system, I think camps are so awesome. And it's not only awesome for the directors and the coaches, but it's really awesome for the kids. And, and you really can impact so many lives. Over the years, I have had so many kids, you know, actually adults now, <laughs> that come and say, do you remember me? I was at a game and that was the best time, you know, that was the best That's tennis great. experience of my life. And it's the greatest compliment you can have because you're like, oh my goodness, wow. No, you I put some things together that was uh, special. Yeah, with camps. Um, I still remember going to a hockey camp in Toronto and just loved it. Um, but at the Illinois camp, um, your predecessor, Jennifer Roberts, she was at Illinois before you. Yep. And she was at Tyler Junior College. And I remember... Yep. Uh, Jennifer and uh, Panam Paul, uh, I hear from her all the time. Her son is uh, playing at Air Force. Just two boys, and um, I believe the youngest is a senior, and he's um, not sure where he's going next year. But anyway, Panam Paul and Jennifer Roberts they came. And they they just they Jennifer had worked the camp, but they came to just observe the camp for a week and film. And Craig Tiley, he was so organized. Um, you know, he was like a, just. He was a little bit older when he came. He had been in the army, um, and to be there for seven years is a long time. You know, thinking about it, close to Nepal, seven years in Tibet, uh, that movie. <laughs> um, so seven years in Tyler. Yeah. But, but Jennifer Roberts was there before, so it was very systematic. Um, you know, but the one thing about the Tyler Junior College camp, we were training tennis teachers. Where yourself as a, a college coach, you're working with players. So yeah. we basically had a nine month orientation and um, uh, Suzanne Depka, who's a coach at Davidson now, um, yep. she was, um, you know, she came and did some work with us. And um, I said, well, just do this drill that you did the second day at Illinois. And she looked at me and she said, how do you know you weren't there? I said, I know. <laughs> I said, this is the drill that you did the second day. And because it was just, this, it was just down to science. Um, um, yep. even at the, we had a gym at, at Tyler junior college and actually there's a tornado that touched down, but it's where the Tyler junior uh, college Apache bells, they would perform at halftime at football and basketball games. And when I was there, they twice, they went to the Super Bowl. twice. They, um, um, they went to, um, they, um, to Washington DC to perform. So they were big, big time. And, um, mm -hmm. we, we used to run the camp 
where we had, there was this old gym and it had mirrors all around it. And uh, the first, you know, we'd film everybody first and then we would go in there and come, this all circles back to your, your brother with Welby Van Horn and, you know, yep. ha- hands on the hips and body balance position and grip stickers. And, mm-hmm. you know, so we say we have a system of systems. We have a system on how we film. We have a system on how we put on a grip sticker and, and we're going to fil- yep. film everybody before we start. And, you know, I think also too is that, yeah, shout out to Jennifer Roberts, which she which she took to Illinois. But Craig had it so organized. So then when he when he wasn't even at the camp, there was a structure to it. Um, oh, absolutely, and the progressions and and you know the form contest. You know, remember that? I yeah, mean, oh, yeah. And the system, the one, two, three. I mean, absolutely, we used all of that. And 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 the best part was, you know, as you do this for a long time, you kind of like tweaking a little bit, and then you kind of create a little bit the system around your own personality too. But yeah, so, so um, valuable for us, you know, um, as we were, you know, you know, you know, growing as coaches and, and, you know, even now, I mean, I'm still trying to, you know, get better, trying to learn different ways to, you know, give that messaging. Right. I mean, that's what this is all about is, is how do we, you know, impact, you know, kids and, and, and the, and, and the shifting of, you know, how, every generation is a little different and so we have to adapt but at the same time have a system right and i think that's what you you did Steve, so well and that's what uh, craig did and then yeah we were the ones that benefited from you know seeing those systems and then trying those systems out well no thanks for the compliments but with, with uh coming back to andy brandy you know we could talk about i mean uh before you would have worked with him you know trained by welby van horn but he worked for Hopman and he worked for Balateri. I mean, what, what a back, yep. what a background! But then to go to say come back to form tournament for our listeners. I mean, asked uh, in fact, I was talking to someone today that years ago they were interviewed by the USTA for a position with recreational tennis, and there's one of the questions was, and the interview is at Flushing Meadows, and a lot of people in the room and said, "What's wrong with American tennis?" And he thought it was, you know, he was put on the spot, like, well, what, what, you know, what, what could he say? And, um, but we say one thing to improve American tennis, if little kids were taught, you know, if there were posters up of say Serena on the serve or, you know, any of these top players, just catch them like at the impact point where the, you know, how the body's aligned, where the, where the racket is and such. Um, but then you give prizes. And so, so yeah, when you did that with, uh, with Craig, you would have had teams and prizes and, and, uh, you, you know, the staff, they become judges and the kids get all fired up to win the forum tournament. So it's actually coming back to someone else who you spend so much time with the Dennis Vandermeer, his term trickery, you know, let me show you a trick. Let me show you a trick. Yep. But uh, yep. with, um, let, let's, uh, skip back to, um, your, uh, days as a college tennis player. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, uh, at Luther College, uh, Decorah, Iowa. And, you know, the way I got recruited was when I was uh, at that expat school in Nepal for those two years after I had hurt my knee. Um, at that time, I mean, my guidance counselor was a lady from New Zealand, and she had no idea about college uh, colleges in America, except for the Peterson's Guide to Colleges in America. So it was a big, thick book that she gave me. And I, I mean, after a day or two looking at couple of those pages I was like okay I give up you know and so at that time I had no idea about deep one deep two deep three but one day I got a call from her and said hey look there's a guy from Luther College recruiting 
you know, international students all over the world, and he's going to, you know, every part of the world and, and recruiting about 200 students to diversify uh, Luther College, which is very much of a Scandinavian kind of a college. You know, it's uh, near Minneapolis, about two and a half hours um, south of Minneapolis, near Rochester, Minnesota. And Dennis Johnson, yeah, met me uh, in Nepal, met my wife, Lynn, in Malaysia. And uh, all I was interested in was like, hey, give me a scholarship. I want to be in America. And I heard that there is college tennis. So that was my recruitment. And yeah, a couple of weeks later, he sent me a package. Um, had no idea it was uh, not a Division One school, but a, a Division Three school. And, and um, but I was just happy to come to America. I, I came to Decorah, Iowa. And uh yeah, that's where I play my college tennis, and so um, I, uh, yeah, had some success there. I played uh, at a fairly high level. I got to, I believe, top five in in Div three. Um, got to three round of sixteen in the NCAs, and all three matches that I lost in the round sixteen was to eventual national champions. So that's my one regret <laughs> is that I that was I, I you know I I I checked all the boxes of all my goals. Of becoming an all-American and you know winning regionals and and you know, going to super regionals and doing well, and the one I could not was to win the nationals and and really uh the one the one real shot I had was against Larry Giver and I I Giver he was a guy from South Africa and we were playing nationals at Swarthmore College uh, in Philadelphia and. and somehow I think it was rain or whatever and we had to go indoors and so I was up a set. And four one up, and I was like literally like about to win this match, and then I got a body cramp because I was sweating so much. So I lost that match, and of course Larry goes to you know <laughs> win, win the, uh, with the with the with the nationals. But um, look, you know it was a you know fun 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 four years. Um, you know Rich Lake was the coach, uh, became like a real like a father figure for me coming from Nepal all the way so far away. Um, you know, kind of found a little bit of like my home there. I had several opportunities to uh, transfer um, to um, Div One programs. I had a full offer um, because I won several regionals and actually got to play the Rolex Nationals in uh, Minneapolis. And one of the years I played in uh, in the main draw at Rolex Nationals. I remember going through the draw that same year. Um, Malivai Washington and Todd Martin played the same tournament that I played. Um, so, yeah, I had a offer to go to Oklahoma State. Um, but at that time, you know, I felt fairly, you know, comfortable and happy and at met Lyndon at Luther College, who now have been married for all these years and have two beautiful children. So, yeah, that was my uh, my college, uh, college years. Um, and at times I do feel like, you know, I, I wish I had maybe gone to a, a Div one program and where maybe um, you know coach could have maybe pushed me harder and maybe gotten even more out of me because I felt like there was a lot more in me but at the same time you know um, no regrets because there were so many other blessings that came with you know um, going to Luther with Luther uh, you mentioned you do Jesuit school in India um, what type of school is Luther it's a the Lutheran Lutheran school Lutheran school okay yeah, uh, and your daughter went to Colby. So, I mean, don't you think there's a lot of positives about the smaller uh, school for an undergrad student versus the big university? I mean, there's obviously a plus minus list on anything and everything. 
no doubt about it. I mean, also the education is fantastic. Liberal arts, right? And then small classes and, and you know, practically got to know just about everybody. I believe we, Luther had, I think, maybe 2,500 to max 3,000 students, just like Colby. Um, so you really got to know the, the students. You really got to know the uh, professors. I mean, years later, you know, I, I got inducted to the Hall of Fame and, and uh, you know, uh, I was one of the most distinguished, I think, alums. I got one of those awards. So I would go there years later and, and I was at a football game and, you know, here's a professor that, you know, still remember my name, you know, comes by and says, hey, Sujay, uh, you know, I, you are in my philosophy class. <laughs> but uh, no, wonderful people and, and uh, you know, Iowa, nice people out there and good experience overall. No doubt about that. Yeah, I think being in the Midwest, there's a lot of pauses with uh, the Midwesterners. And what what about some of the philosophies between the the Jesuits and the Lutherans? Yeah, um, well, let me tell you that. I mean, the Canadian Jesuit school. I mean, it was tough. It was uh, they were very demanding. I mean, we woke up at five thirty every morning, six o'clock. We're in the study hall. Um, Seven o'clock, we're in the chapel. <laughs> we had. Um, breakfast at eight o'clock and at eight thirty we had to make our bed and then we had um an assembly you know and everything was so structured and you know we had uniforms we had uh nails you know we had to make sure all our nails were cut properly we had you know the, the shoe had to be you know shining i mean um very very demanding um and tough it was an all boys um boarding crew um, but, you know, some of the fondest memories were, you know, being there for those eight years. Um, at Luther was a little bit more relaxed, I would say. Um, and, uh, at, of course, at, at, uh, at, at the Jesuit School, St. Joseph's uh, North Point in, in Darjeeling, you know, we, we had to go to chapel just about every single day. You know, Sundays was church. Uh, whereas at Luther, I mean, we weren't, it wasn't mandatory to go to chapel. but. Um, but both, you know, both were great experiences. Um, and, uh, you know, we were the first batch of 200, you know, international students, you know, from all over the world. So we had people, you know, from South America to, uh, you know, we had even students from Papua New Guinea and Africa. And, and, and so it was an exciting time, you know, to really help, uh, you know, Luther, you know, become kind of diversified and, and, uh, yeah, some great times, and I, I and actually did a double major. I uh, studied political science and public communication, and then I had a minor, minor in uh, international studies. And so the goal was to really work for United Nations because that's, you know, uh, my, my, my role model, you know, Dr. Terry Miller, who uh, was in Nepal, and that's what I wanted to do. Um, but, yeah, every summer I was going to uh, work for Dennis Bandam in Sweetbriar College, uh, and kind of falling in love with coaching. And then really after I graduated, I believe I graduated in 92, uh, there was a little recession in America. And I was like, okay, I called Dennis and Pat and they were like, come on over to Vanderbilt, you know, in, in Hilton Head and, and got the chance to, uh, you know, go out there and I thought I'll do it for a year. And, and one year has become like over 30 years now of coaching. Wow. Yeah. Let's touch upon Dennis, but before we do that, um, the, uh, yeah, reason to ask is I, I went to Catholic school and I think years ago is the, the nuns were cracking your over the knuckles with a ruler and, 
it's like, you know, you just think that your parents were clapping. They said, but I think that's it's switched around. Uh, I think the discipline has gone away. But um, with when I was working with Andy Brandy, shortly after, um, I remember, I believe it was at Hopman's, um, 99% that he was working with Bonnie Guduzak, who became a top yeah. 10 player in the world, but very unorthodox. She was a gymnast. And, you know, um, at that time, you know, Annie's two years older than I, mean, we were in our twenties and, you know, I was just reading and, and studying and I said, hey, I think this guy, Vic Braden is the best. And, uh, um, I remember saying to Andy, I said, I'll work, you know, every day, all day, but you know, Braden's going to be in New York city for three days and I got to go listen to this guy. And, and he was with Gideon Ariel, but well, uh, Andy was saying, you know, no, Welby's the best. Welby's the best. So he, he set it up where I went to, I, I worked for Welby. And then after that, and I, for our listeners, my uh, father, I'm, I was the youngest of six. And um, he said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, you know, this, I could stay with this company. And, you know, my father at that time said, well, my youngest is the smartest. He's got out of the upstate New York winners. And I could have been a camp director at Amelia Island. And back then, you know, it was clothes and shoes and rackets. And they put you up in a, a condo and you had a salary and yeah. benefits and insurance. And I said, well, I'm going to go work for Welby Van Horn. And it's, I ended up spending a lot of time with Welby over, I mean, years and years because they hired, the Eisenbergs on the camp hired people that I trained and such. And then even, even when he was in his nineties in the nursing, in his nursing home. And actually for our listeners, we're pretty close to Ed Weiss's, uh, Welby Van Horn's book is going to be on our uh, website. Uh, it's going to be up for free. And and actually a friend of yours, Paul Wardlaw, his book's going to yep. be up as well. So we're just trying to give out free content. But so then I said, well, after I worked for Welby Van Horn, and I mean, it was like $125 a week. And, and it was a dead end job because when the summer's over, I said, well, then I'm going to, uh, you know, I had a van that I traveled around in. And I said, I'm going to go out and, um, work for Vic Braden for free. But anyway, my question, that's a roundabout thing, is that college coaches, I would say it's more of a challenge to work within a player's game. You get somebody when they're 18. So, you know, I mean, I was, you know, with Welby learning how to, how to teach and then with Vic and, you know, and obviously Andy was, uh, was at Hobbins working with pro players and a Bonnie Gaduzak. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not a redo. I mean, when a player is uh, that far down the road and, but what could you comment on that as a college coach, someone comes in and you have to work more within their game. And I know you've already touched upon camps where beginners come and you can work with their games. It's, um, it's really an art form to have to do the latter doing what college coaches do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think for me, what I've learned, you know, in the 28 years of college coaching is that, you know, there's of course the four components, right? The technical, the tactical, the physical, and the mental. And so, in in college, you know, for me at least, you know, I think that where where we can really make a huge impact is, you know, in the tactical and in the physical, and in, and hopefully also in the mental. The technical part is the the most challenging, in in, in my opinion, because you know most of these kids have already played at least. 10 years and they've had, you know, repetition of the same thing over and over. And, and, uh, so 
um, you know, yeah, early on, I, I believe I was a little bit more ambitious and I, I was, okay, you know what, I, I can fix this, you know, and I, I, I'll never forget this one, one kid I had, Natasha Lobnitz was a, you know, kid out of Germany and, and she had this extreme, extreme forehand grip. Um, and, um, but then in the match, she would just slice that forehand, you know, and had a great backhand and she had a really athletic body and, and then, you know, me being a young head coach at Illinois, I was like, you know, I was convinced I was going to be able to, like, change that grip a little bit and where she can actually hit, you know, balls and, and, and hit more linear balls instead of only, like, slicing the ball or maybe hitting this loopy ball. And so, um, you know, she stayed one after her freshman year. I said, you know, stay back. And so I worked with her every single day and had this amazing, you know, I thought transformation of this, you know, forehand, she was hitting the forehand and by July she's looking great. And then I'm like, okay, yeah, this kid's now going to take that next step. And then we go for the first ball tournament and the first ball that comes to the forehand, guess what, Steve? She slices that, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, and, and, and now when I look back, I go, I know what I really should have done would have, was maybe work on that slice and make that even more incredible and let her run around and hit that backhand, right? But, and so I think like sometimes I think, you know, when we are in college, we have this mentality that we can, you know, we can really, you know, change even the technical aspect of the game. But, but honestly, I think you, we can tweak it. And I, I, I do believe that, um, you know, I've, you know, I've had some really good results. I'm just tweaking a little bit here and there. But, you know, you're not going to really make big changes. And the way the, the, the season comes along, like, and the amount of time is, you know, cut down now. We only have 144 days of 20-hour season. The rest is the eight-hour season, you know, where we only get to do four hours of tennis. Um, so is it really realistic that, you know, you can make massive changes? Technically, I don't believe so. Uh, but where we can really impact, I believe, is, you know, you know, is, is uh, having that right program, you know, for their the physics, right? I mean, and, and we have so many resources in college uh, from that, from strength and conditioning coach to you know nutritionist. Uh, we have, you know, I've got kids doing yoga. Um, we have massage therapists. I mean, so um, yeah, that's that's the area that can really impact. And and uh, and then the, I, I love the mental part because. Um, you know, we get to be on the court coaching them. And, um, you know, that's one of my, my favorite part of college coaching is the ability to go out there and, and ask them questions. You know, how do you see this match? Because a lot of times the way they see what's going on, versus, you know, when you're outside the box and you see what's going on, it's two different things. Um, love, you know, video analysis. Uh, love sharing uh, stats. Because a lot, a lot of these kids, you know, when they come to college, they have not really had that opportunity to even, you know, do a video analysis of their matches. With uh, a story uh, on working within players' games at Tyler Junior College, I was there throughout the 80s, and there was uh, three coaches during that time. But there was a, s- a semester where I ran the t- team because they were in between coaches. So I, I, my focus was training tennis teachers, but... Uh, Craig Tiley, who you've mentioned, he was still on campus and uh, 
Dave Anderson, who we, we, we know mutually uh, from Brookhaven in Dallas. Yep. That's where we'll talk, we'll, we'll talk about Sid the kid with uh, your son, mm-hmm. your son. But so we knew that we weren't going to, we, we, we wanted to be the, we wanted to have the team be part of the program. And uh, actually Craig Tiley, um, you know, it was in the works. Dave Anderson was um, at a, a club in Longview, Texas, where he was there for a few, few two clubs actually, where he, he did some great things for a few years. But Tiley was never even interviewed. Um, and then he went on and took a team from obscurity using what we were, we were taught for seven years. Um, but during that time, we, we were working within the players' games. But with your listeners, there's so many things you can do is, okay, we're going to play a set in the alley today. You know, now that's just four and a half feet. That's going to help them shorten, shorten the swing up. And then, oh, we're going to play a set in the alley. Or um, so many people like talking about Jim Verdict. We're going to do bulldog nines and we're going to do it in the alley where um, you ha- have to be within the court. You can't be behind the baseline. It's just ways to shorten up the swing. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, one bounce doubles and. So then also to not only where and uh, just you, you can get a lot done without even mentioning the word how to hit the ball. I tell juniors yeah. all the time, you know, you're playing against people many times. They don't come from a technical background. And one of the coaches, he's been yeah. on our podcast, uh, Roberto Cala. He was with us for 15 years and he certainly speaks English, but, you know, Spanish is his mother tongue. And he, would, he just watches people hit the ball and he'll say no information. But that doesn't mean, you know, take a second look. You know, there's a lot of great players that weren't taught with, you know, technical information. You know, like the coaches mm-hmm. are yelling them, take the ball on the rise, take the ball early, heavy spin, you know, and they just, you know, they're not going to make stupid airs wide. And, but uh, yeah, that's, I think that's something where, um, you know, college coaches, I mean, from a recruiting standpoint, do you try to stay away from people that have really unorthodox, um, really major holes in their game technically, or is it you go with character and record? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, in fact, today I was talking to my assistant about it because, you know, I, you know, the, the natural thing is for us, right? I mean, it's like we, we are so attracted to this beautiful swing and technique and all that. But over the years, I've seen plenty of, you know, crazy looking stroke kind of players winning these big, big matches. And so, um, but you know, there's a ceiling to, to those kids too, right? With, with when there's, uh, there's holes, I mean, that can be exposed to. So, but yeah, college, you know, you, you know, look, you're looking for a winner, right? You're looking for a worker and, and you're looking for the kind of kids that really want to improve too. Like, even in this team here at Arkansas State, I have a kid right now that, I mean, it's unbelievable. Like the work ethic is like world class. I even told her today, I said, look, I said, Amelia, you've got, you know, you're top 1% in all of America in every college player as far as your work ethic. Because I know I've seen great work ethic. I said, if you keep doing this, you're going to be a pretty dang good player, right? And so that intrinsic motivated kid is what I'm looking for and a kid that absolutely loves the game. You know, I tell them, look, your happiest time of the day, you know, should be you coming here to the court and, and, and being out there because this is, you know, this is the fun part. You, do, you get to do this once in your life. You know, you're paid to do this, right? And so, but as, as simple as that sounds, it's, it, you know, a lot of these kids, you know, 
some of them have overplayed in juniors and 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 they've been pushed and they've really um, you know a little bit burnt out you know so by the time they've gotten what they desired so much was is that scholarship in college when they come to college all of a sudden that that burning passion is is not there and so um, for us as college coaches you know how do you identify those kids that are so hungry and that they love the game like like we do right and yeah. and that's a challenge. That's a, that's a real challenge. Oh, I have a brother who's had many roles in the NHL, and he used to say that if there could be a way to just measure someone's desire, you know, yeah, how how much do you really want it? Uh, let me ask you. Um, it was fun. I brought a couple of juniors to visit you when you were at North Texas, and uh, you had some rules. Uh, talk to the listeners a little about your thoughts on tanking when someone tanks. Uh-huh. I think that's, you know, look, I don't have a whole lot of rules, but, uh, you know, one of that is, you know, um, no tanking, right? I mean, so that effort is something that you control. And um, absolutely, I think that's one of the things that I, you know, and I'm, you know, look, when you create a culture and, and, and you, you, you are, you have clarity with the kind of standard that you're looking for. And then you are consistent with, you know, how you deal with that on a day-to-day basis. Um, you're going to get what you're demanding, really. And and there is something called peer pressure. You know, and a lot of these kids, I mean, um, they don't want to let their teammates down, honestly. So sometimes if somebody messes up, you know, the punishment is not for that person. I, I'll just get the whole team <laughs> to do <laughs> the mild run early, you know. Mm-hmm. friends or whatever and and and, uh, and also like you know my philosophy is that you know when you are really really focused on that culture and, and the standards you know if somebody doesn't really you know belong there they're gonna bounce off you know but to me look effort there's no uh, compromise there you know um, you've got to go out there you're, you're, you know this this is a full Full scholarship here. I mean, it's valued at about a hundred to hundred thousand dollars a year. I mean, that's like half a million dollars in four years. Wow. Um, <laughs> you know, how many jobs in the world you get? You know, like that, right? I mean, you get to do what you do. You know, and, and get your education, and everything is paid for. You've got coaches. You've got everybody behind you. Equipment, shoes, rackets, no, traveling. I'm, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you said that because I think a lot of times. Uh, parents, players, even even us coaches will just think the scholarships, tuition, books, fees, room and board. But then if you add up, you know, coaches and you know, the everything, this the travel, the equipment, you know, like you just said, it's 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 a ton of ton of money. Um, so Andy Brandy, Joanna Russell, Sujay Lama, you're a great team. Uh, talk about this uh, threesome: uh, Vandermeer, Verdick, and Lair. When I was just uh, hearing that story about with Craig Tyler and Dave Anderson working with the, the Tyler Junior College team um, for a semester before they hired a coach, as we certainly uh, were very in tune with, uh, you know, Jim Lair's application. But talk to us a little bit about your time with uh, those three, because those are three of our pillars, Vandermeer, Verdict, and Hill, Lair. And what's one thing we're trying to do with our podcast is just, you know, shine a bright light on tennis, carry a torch from tennis teachers from the past. Yeah. Uh, wow. Dennis, uh, 
first, I would say my time in Sweetbriar. I mean, I believe we worked, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, 12 straight weeks or at least 10 straight weeks. Um, and uh, yeah, the passion for, you know, tennis, uh, obviously, I mean, and, and his love um, to teach. And, and, you know, always, I, I always, you know, was the one that he wanted me to be. When, and when everybody went for lunch, he was like, hey, CJ, come on over here. And so I would play all kinds of games with him and everything. All his games was like for, like he would be the one that, you know, he's going to have advantage, right? So if he lost, then he's going to make his own rule. So we had some great battles and, and he hit that flat linear ball. So, uh, you know, I really, really enjoyed, you know, getting to know, you know, Dennis in, a, in, in, that, uh, in that light. Um, and of course, uh, fascinated like his memory, right? The name. I mean, that's one of the things that like I, I was like, how does he remember all these names? And then you know, one of my first years at Streetbriar, you know, we're doing an adult camp, and he comes by my court, and he's like, okay, give me the names. And I kind of like got nervous, and I got to three names, and then I forgot the rest because I kind of blanked out and I'll never forget. He was like, hey, next time I come here, you better know all the names. Um, but no, Dennis uh, was amazing. Um, and I think one of the things that, you know, like, well, the, um, you know, um, Dennis, you, I mean, Craig, I think one of the things I really, really appreciated, you know, that I still use is just the progression. Like, you know, how to teach with progression, you know, how to break it down. And, um, yeah, and that was, uh, that was, uh, that, that was Dennis. And, and then when I went to Hilton Head, um, the other thing I, I remember Dennis was, you know, because, you know, in Hilton Head, when I first started, we did all types of things from juniors to adults and, and especially the adults, um, you know, you had about 50, 60, 80 people at a time. And, there was always one or two that were like difficult. And I'll never forget Dennis saying, you know, Sujay, look, 90%, 95%, they're going to be happy. There's going to be that one, two, three, 4% that are going to be difficult. And the challenge for us is to make sure that everybody out here, those at that one or two or 3% that, you know, are difficult, the other ones also going out, you know, satisfied and happy. So that always kind of like stuck in my head, you know. So when I've done all these adult camps the last several years, um, the last uh, 17, 18 years, I'm always, you know, in adult camps, like looking for the ones who are the difficult ones, who are the unhappy ones, who are the ones who always see the uh, the glass half empty. Yeah. So that was uh, that was Dennis, and 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 um, and as, as he, you know, trusted me and 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 got me going and, and traveling with the top junior players and then eventually all the pro players was, um, you know, he just um, gave me so much um, confidence because he trusted me. You know, he really believed in me. And and as a young coach, you know, you are sometimes doubting yourself, but he just had that, you know, look in his eyes like, look, I trust you. Let's go. And just be who you are be positive, be passionate, and that was it. And so um, when I was traveling, I would get fax messages, you know, fax those days from Dennis and Pat. 
uh, when I was traveling with the pro players, you know, and let's say I was in Australia, I would get the fax and, you know, he would have a note out there and, hey, you know, talk to Amanda about this. Um, you know, they did to in Naoko or, you know, uh, Marianne Diswat or was it Mercedes Paz? So, yeah, that I think that that confidence he um, he had in me and, and and the trust that he had, you know, um, in in me because of my passion, because of my work. I think I think that 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 pushed me a lot. Yeah, I want to talk to you about the players you worked with on the tour. But one thing for our listeners, Sweetbriar, it's a beautiful place here in Virginia, and I went there several summers. I think it was three summers. Um, because not only Dennis was there, but it was, uh, Jim Verdick and Jim Lair. But what Dennis did is he went into the, met with the people at the college and he built six more courts. Very, you know, I used to get upset when people would just talk about Dennis is such a successful businessman because, um, and I think I've heard Jim Lair say that, you know, and I think it's a great question. Did you ever watch him work in person? You know, so people, so many people would criticize Dennis. If you didn't watch him in person, you had no idea. Uh, it was just like amazing how how gifted he was as a in so many different so many different ways. I mean, he was his presentation skills, and then also his information. But so that's what he did. Is he said, "Well, I'll, I'll come in. I'll pay for six more tennis courts and upgrade your facility." But what I need in turn is, uh, you know, use of the courts in the summer and and two dormitories. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, they, Jim, Jim Lair ran one of the, it was like university three. I think verdict was university two or vice versa. Like, were you, you around them during your time with, uh, yeah. Dennis and Pat? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was, especially with, uh, coach verdict. I got to do, you know, be on his court. I learned a lot from him, but, uh, just to go back to Dennis, um, you know, and, and talking about like his, you know, his, um, insight, his vision and, uh, I'll give you an example. For example, uh, Amanda Coaster, uh, when she came to the Vandermeer, she was sporting around 50 to 100 in the wall. And, and Amanda was a, you know, um, five foot shoe. Um, and she had great ground strokes. She ran well, but she didn't have, you know, a finishing shot. So a lot of times when she put somebody on defense, you know, somebody could just like loop the ball and then, Amanda would restart. And so it was Dennis who, you know, I think was encouraged by what he saw with uh, Monica Sellis and Agassi and their swing volleys. And so literally, like, I mean, I remember Dennis, you know, making us feed like hundreds and hundreds of balls, like swing volleys for uh, Amanda because, you know, he felt like that was going to be a difference maker, you know, where when she got in the offensive position and if, you know, the, she had the, uh, her opponent, you know, um, on defense, that they were not just going to just lose the ball and neutralize her. And so, and, and when you think about it, you know, she was 50 to hundred and then she got to top, you know, 25 and the next thing top 16 and, and the rest is history. I mean, she got to as high as five in the world. And so, yeah, Dennis, uh, you know, was a great coach. And it was not just for, you know, beginners or adults. I mean, he he definitely, you know, um, 
a coach for all levels. Um, and Coach Verdict for me, I think the, the, the thing that I remember Coach Verdict most, of course, of course, you know, his love and passion for the game, but he was a sad guy. He had that big book and he charted everything. And I was fascinated. I mean, he had, you know, stats for everything. And those are the days where, you know, you didn't have all these computers and, and handphones or whatever. And so I remember having a lot of conversations with Coach Verdict, you know, um, about what he was charting and what 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 what's the information he was trying to look for, um, and uh, like I told you last week, you know, he was the one that was with Grant Stafford when uh, Grant beat you know Pete Sampras uh, at Queens right for Wimbledon one a year, and and he was convinced that you know if he did this and this and this that he could beat Pete, and I think probably he was the only guy in the world that believed that he could. Grant could take Pete down at, at, uh, on a grass court. We, uh, we have a spinoff from Bill Jacobson's Copy Tennis. We call it T-Charting. It's very simple. Um, you know, there's a plus column and a minus column, and you, you come up with a differential. And uh, it really comes from Jim Verdick, where I tell the kids, you know, you can go to YouTube or you can do it a tennis channel, but just have a clipboard with these charting sheets. And when you're watching tennis, even just do 10 points, just chart 10 points. But I asked Verdick one time and we dedicated a couple of podcasts to coach Verdick and we had his son Doug on. And I think all coaches, parents as well, excuse me, should, um, Doug is very emotional. He reads a letter that coach Verdick used to, um, give to all incoming freshmen, but with charting, you know, to get objective data on a structure practice, doesn't take long when you kids sit in front of the tennis channel, but Jim Verdick for our listeners, he would chart every match, but he would also, you're playing, you know, he would have uh, like mini tennis, one, two, three, four, whatever it was. And, and he would chart it. I said to him in this coaching course, I enjoyed it so much. I went back to it, um, you know, again and again. But so with, with vert, with Vertic, I said, um, don't your players get tired of this? And he said, if they get tired of this, I'm not going to be able to count on them when it comes to nationals. And he won 15 national championships. Um, wow. Amazing. With, uh, yeah, I, I think Amanda Coacher, you know, if, if, if you ask her, I, I had the chance to spend time with Gavin Hopper. I was at Saguzo Bassett and, um, mm-hmm. I was in a position where I talked to Robbie and to hiring him. And, you know, he's an Australian football player, footballer, and you yep. know, he was really into fitness. And, but I think that's where a lot of these touring pros, it's, it's now they, they make the, enough money where, you know, the entourage, they do travel as a team, but, uh, tell us a little bit about on the tour. What was that like? Um, it was just probably just you and one co- one player. It wasn't it wasn't an entourage, correct? Yeah, it was uh, at the time I traveled. It was just you know me and and the player and 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 for me <coughs> to be able to uh, to help the players at that time. You know, there were several players that were in the top fifty, top hundred in the in the world that was at the same time. You know working out of our player development program at Hilton Head Island. So <laughs> there were times that we also helped the other players, especially if it was a grand slam where everybody was. Um, and then there was a lot of times where if I worked with one player for like two, three weeks in a row and they would go back home or they would go back to Hilton Head, I would jump and to another player and then go and travel for another two, three weeks. And so the longest I actually ever traveled, I believe, was like three straight months in Europe one year. Uh, and by that, by the time I mean we were done with Wimbledon, I was like, whoa! And that was that was that was a long, long haul. But um, 
Yeah, it was, uh, you know, look, when I was traveling, fairly young coach uh, in my in the early, mid-20s, um, I think what got me through really was, you know, my positivity, uh, my passion. Um, you know, I remember when I went for my first trip to Australia with, uh, with uh, Amanda, you know, I had bags full of like, you know, football and soccer ball and frisbee and, and jump rope and and and, and uh, after practices, you know, uh, you know, I would just you know go to the park in front of the hotel with uh, with Amanda and and for you know a good thirty forty minutes we'd just like be sprinting, running around, catching balls and things like that. And um, you know, in each, each night I would just you know you know put a nice you know small little you know message underneath her um, hotel's door and 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 try to like keep you know keep her loose, relaxed, happy. Um, and that was my role. And, and, you know, if I spotted a few things, it was, you know, maybe uh, at a dinner table, we would talk a little bit. Um, and then, of course, a lot of the information that, that Minnis and Pat wanted to share, I would get that and, and try to, um, you know, put it together in a in a easy way for her to digest too. Because, um, you know, I was also kind of learning and, 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 and growing. And, and, and you had a person like, Amanda was so such a competitor, so focused. Um, but a neat story I will tell you is like you know as far as like learning was about routines and and rituals. You know, um, my first year um, traveling with her at the Australian Open, I remember she always liked to take all her rackets to the stringers, and she liked to do it herself. She would go there, you know, get the rackets, talk to all the stringers, she would hang out there. Next day she would go pick it up. She would you know, stencil it, put the overgrip. So I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to try to get some brownie points, make her happy. And one of those uh, days, um, I told her, hey, I'll meet you uh, at practice. And so I knew that there was rackets to be had. And so I went early in the morning, got the rackets, uh, you know, did the stencils, put the overgrips, and waited for her outside the locker room. And when she came, she wasn't happy, you know. and uh, he gave me that look that, boy, don't ever do that. So as a young coach, I was like, okay, wow. There are some routines and there are some rituals that, you know, keep people calm, cool, collective, and uh, hey, don't interfere with that. So yeah, that was uh, that was one of those, you know, uh, lessons that I'll never forget. With um, l- looking at uh, your bio, um, just a quick, quick thought, uh, um, Suamatsu, was it? What's the first name? Naoko. Uh, Naoko Suamatsu. Yep. Yeah, so I was in Japan, and uh, Munihiro Yoshida and then his wife um, Kazgo Suamatsu. Uh, that's their niece, and uh, this is just about the Japanese. So I was running an eight-hour program training coaches, and she came the first four hours. <laughs> You know, I think she might have been top 50 in the world. I can't remember, but she didn't come the second day. And so, or excuse me, she didn't come the second half. So it was four hours in the morning, a break, then four more hours, on court, off court, seminar style. So the next morning, she's there and um, her uncle, she was there to apologize. Um, But yeah, I spent some time with her grandfather, uh, but the respect of the Japanese, what was it like to travel with her? Amazing, and uh, and that was also very interesting because you know um, 
I didn't travel as much as Vicky Brown did, but I did travel some with her. But um, she strung her rackets very loose. She stayed very low and compact strokes. I mean, her serve really, she had the wrong grip on her serve. And uh, yet she became actually the top 16 in the world. And she even got to the quarterfinals of Australian Open. And I was at the Australian Open the year there was that earthquake. It was in her hometown. And her, um, you know, luckily her mom and dad um, were safe, but their house collapsed. And that's the year I believe she got all the way to the quarters of the Australian Open. It's not just round 16. I, I believe it was quarters. And and she was, you know, emotionally distraught, but she still was so mentally tough. Um, but, uh, yeah, she just, you know, she she was an unbelievable um, counterpuncher, but yet she took the ball so early and and created havoc. And, and one year I traveled with her to the Canadian Open, and she played Steffi Graf, I believe, in the third round, and took Steffi to third set. <laughs> and Steffi wasn't too happy because here's, you know, Naoko who doesn't look like a great athlete, you know, but yet runs down every ball, takes the ball early, changes direction. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and talk about like learning, right? I mean, I, I traveled with so many different players, but like Naoko did not want to hit more than an hour. And that was it. Like if we practiced, especially on the road, it was literally one hour. And then she'd go to the gym, do her thing. That was it. Uh, you know, Amanda was a little different. She needed more. She need she needed more reps. And then I also was, uh, you know, very fortunate to uh, travel with Mercedes when Mercedes passed an Argentinian um, player who's now actually the uh, Billie, Jean Cape, Billie Jean King Cup captain for Argentina. I traveled with uh, Mercedes when she was more towards the end of her career. But Mercedes. I mean, literally, let's say if she has a match like at four or five in the evening, in the morning, I mean, her practice session was like a workout. It was like an hour and a half, you know, the day of the match. And she needed to hit a lot of balls. She needed to sweat. She needed to feel like she got a great workout. And that would like put her in a place where she could really play, you know, well, if she just got a like maybe 30 minutes, you know, hit that was not enough. So it was fascinating. The you know the the opportunity to work with so many different you know types of players and and, and learn from that. Uh, no, it's great. Uh, circle back, uh, Dennis Vandermeer. Um, I was in Canada. My kids were playing ice hockey. I was working with Richard Hernandez, and it was one of those things where you know before the computer, I said, okay, I've got to write out programs for this. Uh, outfit for the summer and Jillian Alexander came in to run the PTR test. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I said, well, you know, I'm a PTR member. If I could just sit back here, I work at the facility and, and uh, she didn't know my background with, with Dennis. Um, but it what was refreshing is that she said that she had put Andy Brandy through the, the PTR and that he loved it. You know, all the different yeah. progressions and, was she a player there at Florida when you were there? No, that was before me. But I believe, if I'm not mistaken, she might have won the NCAA doubles with Nicole Arendt. I think she did. And then she, unfortunately, she passed away exactly. at a young age with and cancer. She became, yeah. Yeah. Yep. she became the director of country club in Gainesville, who my brother actually worked for Jillian 
when then of course Jalen passed uh, because of cancer and, and uh, my brother became the director of tennis at the Gainesville Country Club. Yeah, that's, that's all these connections, but going back to like say the two ring pros, like Amanda Kocher, she was based at Vandermeer's place, but for the listeners, uh, the same progressions you could, you know, if you're going to help her with her top spin lob, I mean, you would, it's not like it's a, a different approach. It's like this, you've got to increase the upward angle and you know, Dennis had the diff, the three different steps to teach the top spin lob. Um, why don't you t- talk a little bit about that, the connection between working with beginners with Dennis and how, how you could take his ideas, his information, insights and how, and apply that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll tell you a neat story about Amanda was, you know, in Hilton Head, we only had, I think, uh, four covered courts. And so, and the weekends, I mean, if it's rained, I mean, it was always like, the preference was always for the, the adults, right? Because of the adult um, uh, clinics that was going on. And so there were times literally that, you know, when Amanda was in town and she needed some hitting and it was raining and, and there was no other court, she would hop in with the adults and then there were drills where there were fed drills. And so she wouldn't mind being on the court with adults that were like three, five, three, oh, four adults. So no, um, absolutely. I think for me, um, you know, a lot of my learning, you know, um, when Amanda was training was, you know, we always had either Pat or Dennis, um, you know, out there on the court with me. And a lot of it was, you know, I had to be on the other side hitting. And, and so, um, you know, I, I learned a lot just kind of listening and, 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 and observing and, and also, just, you know, seeing what um, Dennis, you know, had to say. And um, again, like you told me, you know, like you just said, um, the, the whole idea of just, simplifying things. I think that was the most important thing I learned was again, bringing it down to those small little bits and pieces and going from there. So whether it's like you said, you know, it's a beginner or a world-class player, it still goes down to those minute little things and, and, and making it easy. And, and that's what Dennis did. And I think that's what I have kind of learned over the years through, you know, mentors like Dennis and, and, uh, uh, you know, to keep it as simple as possible. And, 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 and the highest level of players, you know, you don't have to say a whole lot, you know, um, because so many things that they do also is instinctive. I think Sujay uh, with Jillian Alexander, um, they have to say that, well, I'm being a little bit selfish where, okay, I'll do this. I think perhaps I was the man for the job to uh, sit in the corner and uh, write out programs for the the outdoor season that was coming up. But to me, that's going back to the well. So obviously, I was much older and had spent you know a lot of years studying Dennis Vandermeer. But um, you know, she became a tester, and just to hear all the information, the ideas again, it's I just think say that to the young coaches listening is, is just go back to the well. I want to ask you a question about athletic directors. Um, I think for the most part, athletic directors either in this country come from uh, in college sports tell me otherwise, but they come either from a football or a basketball background. Um, I was in Illinois and I was running a, a, a long weekend for coaches during your press conference. And I had the wise guy question for uh, Ron Gunther. 
is I said, mm-hmm. I said, did you hire Sujay because you don't have to buy him any new clothes? Because uh, I think Florida was orange and blue. It maybe it maybe right. a different color blue, but Illinois is orange and blue. But um, what are your thoughts when it comes to working with an athletic director? If they, um, I mean, if, say they don't know tennis. Um, you, obviously, you've, you've been, you could tell the listeners. Uh, so you were at uh, Florida, you were at North Texas, and now you're at Arkansas State. Am I skip, skipping one? Illinois, yeah, Illinois, Illinois, yeah, Illinois. So, I mean, that's uh, SEC and the Big Ten, and you know, so much experience. But uh, what comes to your mind? If you're not to mention any names, because you've had obviously four different ads, and some of these big schools have more than one ad, correct? Uh, Well, you've got your head, you know, the main athletic director, and then you've got uh, associate athletic directors, uh, several of them. But typically, you know. each school has one athletic director. And so at Florida, of course, was Jeremy Foley. And he, I mean, became one of the, I think, top athletic directors. And, and the way uh, it was fascinating at Florida was like the athletic department was separate to the university. So it was a organization by itself. So it, it, it was like a well-oiled machine. And of course, uh, at Florida, it was like, you better be, you know, contending for a national championship, you know, every sport. So uh, just to give an idea, like, you know, we come back the second year from Stanford, you know, having had a great season. I mean, undefeated until we lost to Stanford and we still won doubles and had a finalist in singles. And we come back and it's like, everybody's like, yeah, tough one, you know, <laughs> next year, <laughs> next year. So we already like, you know, preparing for next year. And so the standards were so high at, at, at Florida and, and I mean, the stakes were so high out there. Right. And, and, uh, but, uh, but Illinois, I mean, I really, really loved Ron Gunther. He was a, just a good, good guy. And, and he was a little bit more, um, you know, I would say, um, he really, he really, um, was wanting to make sure that, you know, that the coaches, um, were really, you know, fulfilled, happy, and and he really cared about, you know, I, I felt like this. he really cared about me um, as a person, you know, and so um, that was a great experience. And yeah, and 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 at North Texas, I had uh, three different eighties. Uh, Rick Villarreal, who hired me, um, kind of an emotional guy, but again, good, good, compassionate uh, human being, and then. Ren Baker now, who, um, you know, I had him for four years, and now he's the AD at West Virginia. Brilliant guy, just brilliant and great vision. Um, yeah, but I think over the years, I, I, I feel like um, the ADs now have more pressure. Um, I think there's a little bit more um, weight on winning and losing. And um, so the win-loss has become a big, you know, big thing for the ADs. Um, and so they're like big on, you know, winning programs. And, and so like, I remember when I became a head coach at Illinois, I was not worried about the win loss record. I was more like, okay, hey, let's get the best schedule. How can I get the best competition so that I can peak, you know, in April and May, um, you know, where the big tournaments are, right? The big 10 championships, the NCAAs. So that was my mindset. And so I think this last, you know, 15 years or so, I've seen a little shift where there's more, you know, 
more pressure for them to to have winning programs and winning records and and then numbers are a huge factor and and the driving force for these eighties and and so I think there's again more money means you know more pressure. I think uh, for young coaches, I, uh, and I think you know t- tennis kids coming up today. Uh, and granted, um, you know today I'm talking to uh, a player from China, a player from Canada. They, the Canadian boy, okay, you know he should have a better idea of say American football, Canadian football, or or basketball. But um, I think co- young coaches today uh, are they're they're coaching kids. They're just playing one sport. They're just playing tennis only but i tell people you should be able to talk football you should be able to talk basketball i one time was on a flight and a girl from uh duke she had both an undergraduate graduate degree and she was going for an interview and she was a you know i found out just talking to her she's a big fan of coach k and mm-hmm. uh, i said well my advice is that when you go in the interview you got to have that that come up and you know because you know, I think that's one thing about tennis is tennis, you know, I tell young people, you really need to be able to talk tennis because it comes through the door, it comes through the mail, and now with, you know, all, all the ways to communicate. Um, but yeah, to be able to talk football, a quick story, um, my oldest sister went to University of Illinois and um, she got a master's in math. And I mean, I have to have her fact checker dig this out, but it was Ron Grabowski, who was a great football player. He made yeah. it from Illinois to the NFL. Yeah. Bob Todd yep. was the interim um, athletic director before Ron Gunther and Jennifer Roberts, Craig Tiley was brought in to be um, uh, the director of tennis instruction when they built the Atkins tennis center. He, um, and then they, the, the head coach by the men's team was fired and Tyler became the interim coach. And then he, he proved himself from there. But uh, remember, you know, we were talking and Jennifer saying, we're going to this meeting. What are you going to say? I said, I'm going to talk to him about football. And, and I said, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait. We got, we have a 45 minute meeting with him. I'm going to talk to him about football for 40 minutes. And then he's going to have the last five minutes. He just said, yes, we'll do this. And what it was, was uh, Jennifer uh, had recommended Tylee be the director of instruction for this new facility. But um, the, do you feel like in, as a, as a college coach, um, does, does tennis, does tennis get enough attention from the athletic department? Um, like, you know, I think the key is what I learned is that, yeah, I mean, it's still a football and, you know, men's basketball driven, but at the same time, I think, you know, you have to make it relevant. And so, um, and that's something that I kind of learned, you know, over the years is that you've got to go out there. You've got to be the face of the program. You've got to be able to just go, on a weekly basis and go and, you know, go to every office. Like, so over the years, like I, you know, all these football head coaches, this, you know, like even like Bill Self, you know, who was at Illinois and, um, you know, uh, Coach Perry at Florida. I mean, you talk about, you know, these eighties, I think the key is, you know, you, you've got to go out there. You've got to go and, and make yourself visible. You've got to make, you know, make yourself relevant. And I think that's one of the great qualities that, you know, of, of, of Craig Tiley. And I think that's what I learned. It's like, I mean, look at where where he started uh, Illinois and where it was. Like, I mean, you, you talk about like, you know, you talk about he galvanized, you know, 
tennis there in, at, at Illinois, and 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 the home matches like the it was like sold out basically, right? I mean, you had net nuts out there, and you know you had TV crews coming out there, radio. I mean, um, and, and so and it's it's and and you have to be the driving force, you know. Yes, you have sports information, you have you know marketing and promotion, but those ads are not going to do anything, you know. Those newspaper ads or those jingles in on the radio, but you have to be, you have to go out there, you have to meet people, you have to find a reason for these people to come, connect them with the players, connect them with you, connect them with the program, <clears throat> and of course, winning helps, right? I mean, you have to win too. With so, uh, yeah, net nuts. Uh, I believe Amir Delic, uh, great tennis player. I think he you know, cracked like five, top 50, top 60 in the world. And he has some problems with sweat glands in his hands and couldn't continue. Um, but Tyler used to have a band, the Illinois band at a tennis match, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And guess <laughs> what? At North Texas, I did the same thing. I got the band and we had up to 650 people coming to our matches at University of North Texas. And I'll never forget one year we went to the NCAAs and we were at Texas, you know, UT Austin, and we were playing Nebraska first round. But before us, you know, UT Austin, sorry, after us, UT Austin was playing another team, first round of the NCAAs in Austin. And literally, there were like 50 people in the stand, and my kids were like, Coach, like we had a whole lot more people out there. Uh, yeah, but, you know, it's hard work, and, you know, you have to really, really go out there. You have to try to be as visible as possible, and you've got to find a win-win situation. And also, you know, the key is like, you can't just, just expect them just to come for the tennis match. You've got to make it an event. You've got to make it, you know, where there's a reason why the kids should be there, why the parents should be there, right? And I think that's, uh, that's, that's hard work, but it's, it's, it's really fulfilling when, when it comes to, you know, comes to fruition. Everything reminds me of something. Uh, it's the title of a, a book. Uh, uh, Bill Self is from Oklahoma and Craig Tyler, lesson in being resourceful. His brother, Dave Martin, I think I have the name right. Dave Martin played with uh, Scott Lipsky um, yep. at Stanford in the pros. But uh, Bill Self, uh, Tyler had a meeting with Chris Martin and Bill Self. And so one uh, Oklahoma, Oklahoma, oh, into Oklahoma. A, Oklahoma to another Oklahoma and said, hey, why don't you come here and help us uh, put this place on the map? And, uh, yep. And he won the last match out for uh and for Illinois to win um when they won the nationals when they won the NCAA. and his choice is the last two choices i mean he's, you know was uh Stanford or Illinois right? and he chose Illinois over Stanford how about that yeah no for the longest time uh we have this tiebreaker test drill and when i would go up and run coaching sessions for Illinois we called it the Stanford drill because uh Stanford, you know, Dick Gould's a class act, but they were they were not going to play. Um, you know, they just you only put so many teams on your schedule. But Tyler would ask year after year. But it got to the point where, you know, they nudged out all the teams and ended up number one. There, there's there's one year just like with you at Florida. Um, they were undefeated, maybe not undefeated, but they won uh, all three. They won the singles, the doubles, and the team championship. No. They they were undefeated. They were they won undefeated too. Every match, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they won, and then uh, Delic won um, 
the singles, and I believe Rajiv Ram and Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson, yep, won uh, won the doubles. And how about Rajiv's uh, doubles career now? Right? Yeah. No, I. I mean, it's great when doubles is on. Um, actually, someone that you know came up with us was was Austin Krychek as a beginner and spent years with Austin and his parents, Rob and Sherry. And I love to watch big time doubles. Um, like this young guy who, um, Salisbury, who Ron plays yep. with, um, it's just not on TV enough. This is, I mean, they're yep. still playing big time doubles. Um, yeah, I just say it all the time. And I think everybody juniors need to hear it. Cause there's so much anxiety as, uh, Mike Costa, the comedian, uh, who played at Illinois before yep. Ram? He says he, he he yawns in between volleys. You know, it's just we <laughs> we actually had uh, Raven Klassen who was with us for a long time, and he talked about yep. how, how good mentally he was. Um, where Brian, on the other hand, uh, Tylee sent him to work with me. He worked with me for some time, and uh, you know, he was a very very good athlete. But you know, it, it's like if you could put the best, like parents would say, if you could put the best of their kids together, because. Uh, you know, but also too is that uh, the the Brian when he went to Illinois, I mean, he was serving with a forehand grip. So Tylee did some wonders with uh, some of those players. Yeah, and then how about uh, Kevin Anderson? I was also there when Kevin Anderson was there, and I'll never forget. Like just about every morning, like around seven o'clock, I would walk by the indoor court, and there was Kevin, and literally, like he was just for half an hour, like he would like bounce, speed, hit a forehand, and then he would be working on his serves and then he took a lesson with Craig and then, then he would go to class and then come back for practice. But he was a skinny little kid and I would always like, you know, pull the curtain. I was like, Hey Kevin, he's working hard. You know, you'll do great. You'll do great. And literally, like I will tell you, like I never thought that, you know, I thought he would be a good player, but I, I mean, the fact that he got to the finals of two grand slams, that's kind of crazy really, you know, and here's, you know, every day I would see the skinny kid out there drop, Boom! Hit a forehand, and then yeah. serve. serve. Yeah, no, he, he he lives in Delray, and there's there's a lot of people that I've trained that have worked at the Delray Beach Center, Tennis Center. Uh, yeah, I, I remember seeing it. Uh, Balateri's uh, was told that you know he was going to hit 100 serves a day. But I think for our, our listeners as well, um, I'm pretty sure, 99 uh, sure that the the parents built a backboard. He had a backboard in his backyard. I mean, yep, they you know, did the. Uh, the backstories are, are, are so important, are so important. Tell us yeah. about, uh, being a tennis parent and Sid, the kid, um, um, daughter went to Colby and now your son's at Butler. Um, I know I made a video for him some time ago and I know that he used to spend some time down at Brookhaven, correct? Yeah. You know, I'll tell you like, uh, it's one of the, the greatest, you know, parts of, you know, my tennis life has been to see, you know, Sid, you know, from being a little chubby kid that was playing soccer until he was about eight years old, you know, often fall in love with tennis and slowly, you know, get a, get better and, and, and better. And, and uh, yeah, and then it was not an easy, easy journey, let me tell you that. And it was at times excruciating, right? I mean, those 12 and 14 and under tournaments and, and you know, the, the highs and then the lows and, and, and the kid's an emotional kid. but um, yeah, and now to see that he um, absolutely loves tennis. And and in fact, last week, you know, he came back for Thanksgiving break and we were in Texas and we actually played a, a doubles tournament together. And, and, you know, we won a round and then the second round of course, we played two Division One guys. And 
for the first set, I felt like I was like in slow motion. And then finally I picked up my game and we barely lost. And I was like, dang, it still stinks to lose. But um, no, I mean, I think, you know, look, what I think I did a good job with was I, I knew that, okay, you know, I've got to make sure that I have my place as, as a father and, and then also try to utilize all my experience and give that experience. And so what I did was, you know, I try to, you know, seek good people, right? And and try to have a nice little team of people um, that were all, you know, going to help his growth as a, as a person and as a tennis player. And, and, and it's really, really fortunate because there were some really good coaches. Um, Ashley Hobson uh, at Inspiration Academy in Bradenton, you know, that's where he would go for, you know, for the bulk training in Bradenton for like three weeks, six weeks. And then around DFW, um, you know, there was a really good, there's a really good coach, Adrian Chabria, you know, was a good friend of mine who loves the technical aspect. So, you know, we would, uh, you know, work together and then he would deliver the lessons. And then of course, some really nice people like, you know, Dave Anderson at Brookhaven who, you know, gave Sid the opportunity or times that he even got some matches at the other academies like, you know, T-Bar or even Dan. Um, you know, in, in Texas, uh, in the DFW area, it's so great because there's so many really good players uh, to practice and, and to play matches. And, um, yeah, you know, he was not one of those guys that was exceptional, like, talents right off the bat. It was going to blow people, but he progressively got better and better. And and uh, he really wanted to play uh, Div 1 tennis. And when he... Uh, you know, finally got the offer to uh, be at Butler University and, and play for Butler. It was a great day and, and great celebration. And and now he's a freshman and has had a great first semester, loves it out there. And and uh, I'm sure he's going to love, you know, four years of uh, college tennis. I think the best compliment I could get was, you know, the coach and their teammates coming to me. You know, we were at Ballsford for a tournament and, and they came and said, you know, it is the greatest guy, greatest teammate, and he's the loudest, and he's he just gets this. And I said, well, you know what? He's lived you know, oh, yeah. this his whole life. He has had no choice. He's been around college tennis, and, and it was just good to know that, you know, he's such a good team player. No, I think of uh, Brian Shelton's son, Ben. Uh, you just to grow up on a college campus, there's got, has to be so many positives for someone like your son to have been around athletes and just now that he's there, he, I was, that, that expression, he, he gets it. Um, tell us uh, about your um, new setup. You've, you've gone from North Texas to Arkansas State. Tell us what's going on. No, super excited to be here. Uh, had this opportunity to come, and I really, you know, it came down to two people that really uh, pulled me here. Our athletic director, Jeff uh, Puritan, uh, was the number two guy at Alabama for 15 years. So he just came here last year. And then Amy Holt, who's my SWA, also my uh, oversight, she was the head coach at Kansas and played for Murray State. So how often do you get, you know, an oversight who actually, you know, understands tennis? And, and so for me, 17 years at UNT was great. But I think at, at some at some time in your life, you know, that change is so so needed. I think it's rejuvenated me. Um, it's a different state. Um, yeah, we have uh, come here where you know the the program really I think um, needed me in in a way, and I needed the, the change too. And um, these kids 
especially the seniors that have gone through a ringer because they've had, I'm like the fourth coach in four years. So they've not had the stability that they need and, and uh, they've really received uh, me and my assistant uh, really well. And I think we've really, um, you know, energized them. We've given them love. We've given them hope. And we know that they're going to be very important as to what we build here. And, and you know, Steve, what, what I've really um, learned is that, I you know, I've, I really like building, you know, going to Florida was great and winning that championship was great, but going to Illinois and building Illinois from like 75 to top six in the country, that was awesome. Going to UNT where, you know, the team was like dead last in the country and we got as high as top 40, went to several NCAs. We had kids going to the NCAs, singles and doubles, winning conference. That was awesome. But here again, coming here, I, I like, I love the challenge. I love the challenge of like building again from the ground up. Right, I mean, from the bottom here, and uh, we've already had some really good success recruiting wise. Um, you know, we just signed a kid that's coming that's 207 in the world that's coming in January. Um, and you know, we're selling our vision, our passion, uh, player development, and and most importantly, you know, uh, they'll be looked after and cared for, and and we're gonna make them, you know, um, grow both on and off the court. And so I'm really proud of that. And yeah. Just having the time of my life, you know, doing what I love to do. That's great. I'm going to guess that you're 54. I am 55. <laughs> 55 years old. Close. And that's right. But you sound like you have the enthusiasm that you had when you're 25. You know, look, I like it. You know, the other day I'm driving with my assistant to pick up a record, and we are driving to Memphis, which is about an hour away. And I said, you know, my Marshall, I I feel like I'm still that young assistant coach. You know that that was at Florida with Andy. You know, I don't feel like, oh my God, I've got this 28 years of college coaching. And, and I think, um, yeah, I just, I, I, I believe in college tennis. I love college tennis. I love the format. Um, I just love, love the variety. And, and then the challenge, right? I mean, I, I, I want this program to do well. I want us to be, you know, um, a champion, right? I mean, we want to contend for a championship. I want to take this team to the NCAAs, you know, and, and, and hopefully one day, you know, be a top 25 team. But yeah, I've got plenty of energy and yeah, um, I'm excited. With, um, here's an off the wall question. You were in Champagne, David Foster Wallace. You know, you know that name? David Foster uh, Wallace. Yeah, I feel like I've heard the name, but. Yeah, he, unfortunately, he's a writer. I mean, he's a writer. He committed suicide. He took his own life. But in that in that world, I mean, prolific writer and um, mostly fiction, several novels. But he wrote uh, Roger Fetter, A Religious Experience. I'm not sure if that's exactly the title. But his father was a professor at the University of Illinois, English, I believe. His mother at Parkland. That's, is that the name of the junior college? Yeah, 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 college, so, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, he uh, one I think he wrote an essay. Um, I had a crush on Tracy Austin, but a total total tennis junkie. But if the stars were aligned, I mean, he he was in um, Illinois. Uh, it was just a different time, but uh, he did so much research. But having read so many things that he's written, you know, so, someone could really study his work not only by reading his books but getting online and his following. Um, 
But if the stars were aligned, I just think if someone like that had uh, researched Braden, you know, like say Craig mm-hmm. Tiley, for example, when he went to uh, Illinois, um, he knew the Braden method through his training with us. You know, he, yeah. he had not worked with Vic. I mean, certainly like a lot of the people I've trained, he, you know, helped with a weekend clinic or I remember one time we went to uh, Aspen uh, or near Aspen to help Vic with his uh, tennis, tennis school that he had there. But uh, yeah, it's just the stars were aligned. Um, but, um, you know, for our listeners, um, I just wrote some notes here. Um, it's not like we're name dropping, but we, we have eight pillars. Vandermeer is one. And it, you know, obviously you spent so much time with your brother with Van Horn. Um, yep. Harry Hopman. Um, yep. With Andy Brandy, uh, obviously yep. um, connected us where Hopman used to have uh, summer staff that he would hire from us. And then also during the winter months, um, you know, I, I did a number of things with Nick indirectly, but with, uh, I want to come back. We talked a little bit about Lair. We haven't touched so much about him, but Ashley Hobson, um, yep. he, he, he was with Peter Burwash. I've heard great things about, Ashley, about Ashley Hobson. Yep. And, uh, yeah, Ashley and me, we worked together with Vandermeer. So when I okay. was uh, working in Hilton Head, Ashley was, you know, also working at the time. So we, you know, that's how we became really good friends. Yeah. And I'll say like Peter Burwash, for example, at one point, you know, he did work for Dennis Vandermeer and all these, all these connections um, with, I think that's where people need to be resourceful and try to get connected um, with, you know, tennis teachers from the past um, with um, like, say for example, uh, Craig Tiley, this is, I was, this was just, the rules and regulations. So Jennifer Roberts taught a class at Tyler junior college called team coaching where Tylee was a student. And then mm-hmm. a year later, Tylee was teaching the class, but I had to be in the classroom because they were not officially on, on, on faculty. So they were, they were titled lab assistants, but they mm-hmm. actually used Jim verdicts. Uh, they had other materials, but Jim verdict had a manual on, on team coaching. Um, mm-hmm. so I, before we got on the podcast, I said, uh, it's just amazing, uh, the connections that you and I have, uh, directly and indirectly with these tennis teachers from the past, but we yeah, really haven't, we, and then, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, also like with, uh, with the Vic Prater, I mean, because of you and because of Craig in a connection with Vic. So a lot of my stuff, I also got out of Vic Prater too, because through you and, and through Craig. Yeah. And, uh, it's crazy, you know, how many you know, great coaches, both of us have had a chance to be kind of, you know, around. Right. I really appreciate what you've said about camps too. I think it's, because I know, I think I'd say overall, a lot of coaches now, um, they're more of a figurehead with their camp. Uh, Years ago, the the tennis teachers, they had to run the camp because they just didn't get paid enough. That that was really the bread and butter years and years ago. But, uh, but what about Jim Lair? Um, also a little bit of how um, you've touched upon Jim Verdick and Vandermeer. How about Jim Lair? How's he helped you with your players? Yeah, so with Jim, I never got to work with him, you know, one-on-one. It was a lot when he would come to the island, when he would, you know, come for the symposium. That's when I, you know, really, um, uh, you know, got to really listen to him and then really start, you know, um, reading his stuff and, and over the years, I mean, I'm one of his biggest fans ever. 
means I really, 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 you know, the mental game is to me, I know, and the high performance world, it's, it's critical and probably the most important thing. And, and so for me, I go back to my formative years as a player, you know, and, and, and coming from a small country for a long, long time. I mean, you know, once I would leave the subcontinent, I mean, I just would break down. And, and I think a lot of it was because I didn't believe in myself. I kept feeling like, well, I'm inferior because, you know, hey, I haven't had this training or I don't have this many rackets or, hey, look, they look bigger, they look taller, uh, they look stronger. And really my breakthrough um, uh, came, you know, um, like around 18, 19 years old. Um, it didn't come on the tennis court, David. It came actually, I by chance got a chance to be in a regional training uh, of like the top German kids and, and somebody didn't come. And so just to even it out, I got the call because of some connection my brother had with a regional coach and said, hey, can you know your brother come just to fill up? And so, and I was like, really like scared. And, you know, I, I had at that time, I would say, uh, you know, a little bit of a low self-esteem and, and I think a lot of that affected my playing. And so whenever I would go to Europe or go to bigger Asian countries like Japan, you know, um, Korea, I would not perform well at all. And, and I literally would lose the match before I had even left the hotel room. So in this training, you know, there was one day I remember, um, you know, it was an intense training. It was like six hours, morning, afternoon. And then at the end of the day we had to run a hill three times go up down up down three times and and i was like okay i i cannot embarrass myself i've got to be you know i've got to at least keep up with these guys and to cut the story short <laughs> by the end of those three laps i had beat everybody by at least half of half a hill or if not a whole hill so I, you know, I had worked so hard that I'd gotten so, so, so strong physically. And when that occurred, I realized that I had something that they did not have, that mental fortitude, that ability to suffer, you know? And, um, and then I, you know, from that day onwards, like, I think that my mental part of, you know, you know, my game just got stronger and stronger and stronger. And I think, you know, when I, of course, got a chance, you know, as a coach to like really study, you know, the things that um, Dr. Lair, you know, um, preached, it was like, okay, it's connecting now, you know, and, uh, and, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have every, you know, every team of mine has to look at that. Uh, was it, was it a 16 second cure? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it's a, it's a mandatory thing, every team, you know, because I, I believe in routines. I believe in going to get, having an anchor, you know, and, and, you know, the whole, the goal is, you know, to stay present, you know, how, how, how can we stay present, right? Not look back, not look forward. And that's the, that's the key. Um, and then how do we, you know, how do we convert the pressure, you know, um, into something that's going to ignite us, not you know, stifle us. We just had an intern here, coach, which can take your hat off to him. He came here for five, six weeks. And um, I said, well, sometimes when you observe, uh, you, you need to be passive. You don't have a speaking part. But he did an outstanding job in many, many ways. He was on 
I helped with a couple of podcasts. But when you mentioned Jeff Lair, if you go to the YouTube, you mentioned Jim Lair, his son, Jeff. I remember one time um, being on the court with Jim Lair, Jim Verdict, Dennis Vanderveer, and, you know, Jeff was hitting serves. And I think it's very important to realize sometimes you don't have a speaking part. It's like, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't asked and I was a young coach and it wasn't, you know, it was, it was not my place to say anything. I wasn't asked, okay, what do you think of his serve or his forehand? Um, but Lair, 17 books. One is storytelling for mental toughness. I may have that a little bit wrong, but that's basically the gist of it. Um, pick out one and we'll wrap this up. Uh, it's been so great to talk to you. Hardest worker, most competitive, most grateful. Um, you know, you don't necessarily have to uh, pick pick the or use the name of the player, but you coach for so many years, and it, I mean, it's hard to say. Okay, this is a the number one. Uh, but who comes to your mind with just if you were to pick out one of those, or maybe even one of the same? And put, I think if you can put those three together, like who's the hardest worker, who's the most competitive, and who's the most grateful? Why don't you tell us a story of one of your players from years gone by, or even currently? Don Booth. You know, the kid out of Kansas. And um, I got a chance to be with her for three years. Um, team player. Um, now, I use the word altruistic, you know, and altruism. And I think um, tennis players, uh, you know, they're, you know it's, it's, they're brought up where they are the show, right? I mean, you know, everything is catered to them. And and then once in a while you get a kid like a Don Bruce, you know, that's so altruistic. Everything is about, okay, how can I make everybody else better, right? How can I sacrifice? How can I, um, and I think, uh, yeah, I, I would say, yeah, she really is someone that I, you know, and she never lost a meaningful match at Florida. Those three years I was there, when we needed a win, she was there, you know, and, and when you have a kid that, Works hard, prepares well, does everything 100% and has character, right? And, you know, you hear always character win championships. That's what that is all about. Because when you get to a situation where you are now depending on that person to win that big match or national championship match, you know, you know that this kid's going to deliver because he checked all those boxes. And, um, yeah, and there are very few, and and I've had some great ones. I mean, at Illinois, I don't know if you remember a kid, Jennifer McGaffin. Remember that? Yeah, thing? yeah, yeah. Incredible kid out of Iowa. Iowa and right. when we beat, yeah, this is a good story. We beat Duke when they were number one in the country, and we were ranked forty nine in the country, and they had just beaten Stanford in the finals of national indoors, and they came, and our match somehow. I mean, we got. Smoked two out of that doubles, two ma- two doubles matches. We lost like literally in like twenty minutes, and then somehow Jennifer and her partner—I uh, don't remember who the partner was—we were able to sneak out a win at number one doubles, and that kind of created a little bit of a momentum. So we go into the locker room. I'm a- about to go and give a speech, and um, and and Joanne and me—we are outside the locker room, and we are—I'm I'm thinking, what should I tell? You know, because it's going to be an uphill battle here. And and I hear uh, one of the kids screaming and saying, we are not losing. Did you see what, you know, the, the those girls were wearing from Duke? And apparently, like, I didn't even notice, but 
they had just been wearing their practice shorts and practice shirts for the doubles match. And so anyway, I go there, I don't say a word, I go, let's go, you know, and the kids were fired up. Anyway, we lose two more matches really quickly. Now we're down 3-0, and then we make the comeback, and the deciding match is, you know, Jenny McGaffigan, and she's playing Amanda Johnson, and both of them were from the Quad City, you know, Davenport, Iowa. And Amanda Johnson was always top 10 in every age category, 12, 14, 16, 18, was with the USA national team. And Jenny was a chief sport athlete. She did volleyball, she did basketball, <laughs> she did tennis. And she got, you know, in the summer, she got better and better in tennis, but then she'd go in the fall and play all these different sports. But she was a great athlete, great, like just like Don, high character, coachable, you know, and just did everything the right way. No, I, re- and, I remember hearing stories about her. She was from a tennis family, correct? Where there was more than one yes, sibling played well. Yeah. Three of us, uh, so there were four, four girls. All of them played uh, Div 1, Notre Dame, Wisconsin, Indiana, and uh, Jenny was at Illinois. I think Jenny was the best. She was the oldest one. But comes to a tiebreaker third set, and Jenny wins like seven four or seven three because you know she just you know she handled the pressure so well but yeah, yeah i would say don booth definitely and and jenny would be up there also with uh, many i mean i'm i've had some great 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 kids over the years you um mentioned the family from iowa what was the last name again um jenny mcgaffigan mcgaffigan no, I remember yeah. name. My, my son connor uh Family out of Cincinnati, three brothers, McCarthy, uh, all at different Big Ten schools. But what competitors? Uh, it's kind of like, you know, what kind of water are they drinking at that house? I mean, with the competitiveness. But what an honor for uh, Don Booth. It was Jackie Calvo who uh, we worked with, who played for Don. So I, I got a chance to watch Don Booth play. And then just in the process when she was recruiting. And, uh, you know, I know Jackie Calvo became her captain. Um, but what an honor for you to mentioned her um just the way you said character with all the exclamation marks um yeah character is what's on the inside and reputation is what was on the outside it's that you know i think that's where jim lair um loud and clear that's what he's saying he just calls it the character muscle yeah 100 percent. and 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 something like like you know for example the mcgaffin family how in the world were they able to produce four amazing tennis players right i mean just to, you know, help Sid, just, that's only one. I mean, that took a monumental effort, right? And yet here's a family out of Davenport, Iowa, I mean, and produces four, you know, incredible kids. And, you know, you're talking about, like, multi-sport athletes, right? That's yeah. what they believe in. I mean, Barb, I remember, McGaffin, the mother, was high on that, that those kids played all these different sports, that they were in different teams. And yet they still were able to, you know, produce four really high level division one uh tennis players so that's uh that's kudos to that family i do think kids from the big 10 my thought is that they just grow up uh loving big 10 sports i think that adds to the competitiveness um no doubt about that yeah no doubt about that yeah and if i had i would say if i had to do something over at illinois i would have recruited even more of those midwest kids because they, I mean, they were, they were like really, really high character kids, you know, and, and that really got only better during the four years of their career. 
in you know, college. So, yeah, since the advent of the academy, I mean, it's researched and it's a fact that um, the Midwest produced more professional players when kids stayed at home. You know, all this hype. You know, I spent so much, so many years in Florida. All this hype to, uh, you know, go to Florida, be in an academy. Most kids, hundred percent. There's one thing we're trying to do with these podcasts: is kids need to be in a uh, a pre academy. Um, the Japanese girl that you worked with, uh, Swamatsu. Uh, yeah, I've told the story before, but her, um, it was Cosgo's father and Aoko's grandfather. You know, I was doing these seminars throughout the country and. I ended up being in the car with him, and obviously he spoke a little bit of English. I, being an American, didn't speak any Japanese. And uh, so we went to the Japanese tennis center, and everybody knew him. And he just grabbed his chin, and he goes, I have a famous face. <laughs> and uh, I said, yeah, how would your daughter and your granddaughter become so good? And he said, basics, 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 repeat, repeat, repeat. And Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, so there's really not a any secret formula. Uh, Sujay, I'll put you on the spot here. If you tell us, just tell us one thing we need to, uh, we won't do it, but we, I guess we could write it on the refrigerator, not the bathroom wall, but why don't you just give us a closing thought on uh, tennis and it's something that will help our listeners. You certainly already helped already. A lot of golden nuggets. Yeah, I mean, for me, I just go back into just, you know, um, passion and positivity. You know, and I think like I go back to the breaks I got, you know, in in my life, and 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 I and I, I always say, I mean, I have been so blessed and I've been so lucky. And what got me through? What what was the difference? Like, because there are plenty of people that maybe could do so many things better in so many different areas, you know, and I did. And I'm like, why? What what caught you know Pat and Dennis's attention? What did Andy see in me? And I think that's that I think my my key thing is you know you know passion and positive positivity of course work ethic right I mean but that I was I mean very very lucky because of you know you know so many great mentors like you know my brother and and you know those guys but I think um, it's so easy you know um, to see the glass half full right and I think and like lately I've been doing a lot of yoga Steve and it's a game changer and. Um, obviously physically for many different reasons, strength and flexibility, but towards the end, there's always that meditation part, right? And, and, and then the last thing we always do is, you know, we get into that, um, you know, we, um, what do you call that? Um, uh, uh, what's the word when you are in the womb of your mother? What position is that? What, what do you call that again? Um, you got so at the end, you know, you on the on the side of your body, a fetal position, right? Fetal, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and and then you know the instruction always talks about, you know, like that's an opportunity that again you have a rebirth, right? And you you're starting all over again, and then you let go and you just kind of move forward, right? And it's and that's so huge, you know, because that's what we control is moving forward, right? And looking at things in a positive way, looking at the blessings that we have. And I think that's what I've always done. And I think that, you know, it's it's so important to stay in that path because otherwise, you know, we human beings have a habit of like 
comparing ourselves with other people and what they have, what they don't have, or, you know, just living on, you know, what's happened yesterday and what might happen to, tomorrow. I think just to kind of stay present, um, be passionate of what you do, how you do, and, and, and yeah, just keep loving it. No, I think so well put. Uh, passion and positivity. I think young juniors have to realize that the, the positivity doesn't have to always be cheerleading. Is that the, the passion is the positivity. Is that the coaches and, you know, the parents as well. I mean, they're pouring out the energy. And, um, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, if, if just, you know, it's like, okay, plug in the passion. You shouldn't have to plug in the passion. Is, 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 that's where we're asking you, and you mentioned Don Booth, uh, Besides hardworking and besides competitive, you're just grateful. You sound so grateful. You know, talk you sound, about it. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, you sound, like, I'm sorry to interrupt. You just sound so grateful about having been in tennis, your history, your life in tennis. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, like, this is a dream. I mean, a kid from Nepal, look at this, you know, to have this opportunity, this many opportunities. But, I, you know, one thing I always talk about is, like, you know, Tennis is one sport that when you are out on the court, your character is exposed every single point, basically, right? I mean, it's so challenging. And so that's one thing when I was coaching, said, I always you know, talked about that. Like every time you are there, you are exposing your character, right? Um, because, you know, and, and that's where it's like you forgot, you've got to be resilient, you know? And in and, and life too, you have to be resilient. You know, it doesn't always go your way. And and when that happens, it's like okay, how do you how do you um, respond, right? And that's what life life is about, and that's what tennis is about. It's, yeah, it's response. Well, a, a man from the, the land of Mount Everest. Um, I like to tell people, you know, there's an invisible mountain. You know, you just got to step, go one step at a time. And 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 I think a lot of young players, you know, they create an, a, a visible in, a tsunami. You know, you're going to wipe yourself out is that you just got to get up and, and and just be grateful that you have the opportunity to get better. Uh, that's a gym, yeah. like a Jim verdict. You've, you've, so I could talk to you forever. I mean, Jim verdict, don't you want to get 1% better? Um, yep. Yeah. But Sujay, thank you so much. It's been fantastic to have you on as a guest. Well, Steve, uh, thank you. And again, thank you for your friendship, but also thank you for being such a great mentor and a teacher. I mean, look, you know, you are a treasure. I mean, you, you know, I, I read every time, whatever you post, even on Facebook, I read those, I share those with my players, with my coaches, uh, you know, so many, I mean, you have, I mean, you're, you've given your life, you know, to this great sport. And, um, we are so fortunate, you know, that, uh, you know, you've given so much of yourself, you know, to this game. And, and so many of us have been touched. So many coaches, so many coaches that I have now trained under me. Um, I've passed on your stuff to them, you know, and, and, um, you know, so thank you. And thank you for having me on this podcast. This is yeah, a, no, it's a, a, no, it's awesome. Uh, yeah. Thanks for the, the compliments. Um, and as you know, I mean, I try to be the first one to say that what we're sharing really, um, you know, it, that's all it is. It comes, you know, I, I tell people, well, maybe 90, uh, maybe five percent of what I share is something that's original because it's just, you know, uh, you and I have uh, been fortunate to know so many of the same people, and we've done done some homework. But uh, no, thanks for being part of this. I appreciate it. I'll be in touch. Thanks. Dude. All right. Appreciate good night, Sujay. All right. Bye. Okay. Good night.
Bye. Podcast 173 in the books. Again, uh, thank you, listeners. Thank you, Sujay. Sujay Lama, amazing background, the passion with your father for the game, influence from your older brother as your mentor. Um, there's a lifetime in tennis. The, the number of uh, accomplished tennis teachers you worked with, the championship culture at the University of Florida, nearly 30 years as a head coach, being a tennis parent, touched upon a lot of a lot of topics in tennis. One topic we could come back to is the, the writer from Champaign, Illinois, tragic ending to his life, but uh, with uh, David Foster Wallace, who wrote about tennis. And I always think that if he had connected with uh, some of the educational pieces that we talked about tonight, tennis needs that, tennis needs energy, tennis needs a better following. Luther College, Lutheran, Two Marks from my hometown, Mark Hamlin, Mark Costello. Yeah, Smith, smart guy, Luther College, Lutheran. But again, appreciate people listening to these podcasts, just trying to help tennis out. And like to thank Sue J again for helping us help people out. Adios, amigos. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>